Ladies and gentlemen, at this stage, we introduce the subject himself. He is, as you will perceive, fit and well-nourished. He comes straight from a night's sleep and a good breakfast, undrugged, unhypnotized. Tomorrow, we send him out with confidence into the world again, as decent a lad as you would meet on a May morning. What a change is here, ladies and gentlemen, from the wretched hoodlum the state committed to unprofitable punishment some two years ago. Unchanged after two years. Unchanged, do I say? Not quite. Prison taught him the false smile, the rubbed hands of hypocrisy, the fawning, greased, obsequious leer. Other vices it taught him, as well as confirming him in those he had long practiced before. Our party promised to restore law and order and to make the streets safe again for the ordinary peace-loving citizen. This pledge is now about to become a reality. Ladies and gentlemen, today is an historic moment. The problem of criminal violence is soon to be a thing of the past. But enough of words. Action speak louder than action now. Observe all. Our necks are out a long way on this, Minister. I have complete faith in Bronsky. If the Poles are right, we have nothing to lose. Hmm. Hello, heap of dirt. <laughs> oh, you don't wash much, do you? Judging by the horrible smell. <laughs> Why'd you say that, brother? I had a shower this morning. Oh, you had a shower this morning. <laughs> you trying to call me a liar? No, brother. Well, you must think I'm awfully stupid. <laughs> <laughs> why did you do that, brother? I've never done wrong to you. You want to know why I did that? Well, you see. I do this! And that! And this! Because I don't like your if you want to start something, if you want to start, well, you just go ahead. Go on. Please do. Go on. I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be sick. Let me sick. I'm going to be sick. Please let me get out. You want to get out? Now, you listen to me. If you want to get out, you got to do something for me. Here. Here. You see that? Is it that you? Well, I want you to lick it. Go on! Lick it! Uh, and oh, my brothers, would you believe your faithful friend and long-suffering narrator pushed out his red yazik a mile and a half to lick the Grasny Vonny boots? Uh, and again! The horrible killing sickness had whooshed up and turned the like joy of battle into a feeling I was going to snuff it. And again. Nice and clean. Thank you very much. That will do very well.
God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 317, A Clockwork Orange. And this is listener requests. No! Great. (laughs) (laughs) No listener requests. So thrilled to be doing the show for us. (laughs) This just turns into an unexpected (laughs) rant. (laughs) No, I was watching this. I cannot believe there was a time in my life where I was watching movies without subtitles, which is really most of my life. How did I understand this at all? But then even like with subtitles, weepy young Davachka. <laughs> what the fuck? The amount of slang in this movie. Like, I don't know how I understood this. Well, you can kind of get the context clues. Definitely. About what they're talking about most of the time. I think so. Yeah, taking a small break from the listener requests, we will get back to that next time out but we are doing a film that is equal parts controversial and also provocative and also one that has been on the list forever i know we say that all the time but i can specifically remember an early version of a list oh yeah where i had a clockwork orange next to poltergeist i had a brief moment where i was like i cannot believe we haven't done this yet (laughs) Well, Poltergeist, I believe we did around episode 82, so that should give you some context as to how long this has been on a version of a list. It got the push. But much like a Paul Thomas Anderson or David Lynch or something to that effect, anything to do with Stanley Kubrick is a huge undertaking. I doubt that we'll even really scratch the surface of this movie in however long this takes, which Mm. I'm expecting a pretty long episode, but we're going to do what we can. Sure. It's sure an will. interesting film to discuss, one that could certainly never exist today, and not just for the reasons that jump out at you on the surface level, because that's more than enough, but I think even on a deep ideological level, this movie would not really be welcomed with open arms these days. It's definitely cynical and pretty damning of society at large. So before we discuss A Clockwork Orange, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod, and make sure you are subscribed to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, whatever method you're using to listen to the show. I'm sure you can subscribe there. But if you use Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and review on that app. You can also reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com to negotiate a listener request, to request a free sticker, which you can also do via Twitter. But hopefully we'll have our regular listeners send in emails at some yeah, point. Yeah, A little bit of a slowdown in terms of the inbox. Apparently yeah, people weren't that excited about the new mailbag section of the show. <laughs> well, it takes a moment for everyone to adjust yeah, and yeah. get used to it. But yeah, we would like to read emails on the show more often, so hopefully that'll make a comeback. It comes in waves, and I'm sure the next wave will be huge. Mm. We'll see. Finally, find us on Letterboxd. 
1983, and Matt Crosby. So let's jump into it. A Clockwork Orange was released in 1971. The film was directed by Stanley Kubrick with a screenplay by Kubrick based on the 1962 novel of the same name by Anthony Burgess. This was Kubrick's first solo screenplay. And part of the narrative that's going to take shape over the course of this episode will be how jarring it must have been to have the director of 2001 A Space Odyssey, a movie that, while daring and innovative and unlike anything people had experienced, was still rated PG and may have even been rated G. I don't know what the rating system was really like. It was a cold, dark movie, though. Yeah, but there's nothing in it that would prevent people from going. Yeah, yeah. And this is the polar opposite of that. Totally. (laughs) A movie that, even by any era's standards, is shocking. Oh, yeah. It's a shocking movie still. blown away. So before we jump all the way in... If you have never seen A Clockwork Orange or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this show, you can find it right now streaming on HBO Max. Of course, you would also be able to rent it as well, but if you already have HBO Max, that would be your go-to place. Like all of Kubrick's major films, I'm not sure about all of them, mm. like the early days, but I know pretty much at a certain point, he was Warner Brothers only. He was basically one of their guys. Oh, yeah. So... Obviously, you're going to find this shit on HBO Max. You love the big studios being able to get invested in guys who would make stuff way over the line. (laughs) Not something that really seems possible in our current climate. The film industry has always been a business, and it's always been about money. But if if you go back in time, there was definitely more of a commitment to the artistic side of it. And I think there was a certain amount of prestige involved in being the studio that had Stanley Kubrick basically on staff. Yep. And so you would see a lot of these auteur types. Not always their whole career, but big chunks of their career would be dedicated to one studio because they would have a good working relationship. You don't really see that as much now because it's much more about dollars and cents and all these different things. The budget for the film was $1.3 million. Box office, $114 million making it one of the highest-grossing films of 1971, for sure. That doesn't even seem like a big number now. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. Best Picture, Mm. which it lost to the French Connection. Oh. I did see a notation claiming that A Clockwork Orange was the very first science fiction film to be nominated for Best Picture, I felt like calling A Clockwork Orange science fiction is a bit of a stretch, but... Yeah. It's definitely like a futuristic dystopian society, but science fiction? Yeah. It's a tough tough call. I wouldn't really describe it as that. Best Director, which Kubrick lost to William Friedkin for The French Connection. Best Adapted Screenplay for Kubrick, which he also lost to The French Connection, Ernest Tidyman. And Best Film Editing for Bill Butler, which also lost to The French Connection, Hmm. Jerry Greenberg. This was the year of The Last Picture Show, Fiddler on the Roof, Straw Dogs, Clute, Carnal Knowledge, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Holy shit. They were all in the mix. Best year ever. A Clockwork Orange was infamous from the get-go, earning an X rating in America, along with Midnight Cowboy, The two pictures rated X to be nominated for Best Picture. Of course, Midnight Cowboy actually won. However, 
when you watch the two films with 2023 eyes, one of them feels like it could be rated X, and one of them certainly doesn't seem like it would be rated X. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a pretty big difference between Midnight Cowboy and A Clockwork Orange. I'd say so. Because no matter how much time goes by, it still seems as if A Clockwork Orange is shocking, unsettling. There's really just like one idea of the other one that I think people were probably uncomfortable with. For certain people, maybe even more so, is it shocking today? Yeah. And what I mean by that is certain members of our current society would react more shocked than some of the members of the 1971 society. Because I think there's a certain generation of people that have been very much sheltered from things like this. And I'm not just talking about the violence and the rape Mm -hmm. and all of the horrific imagery in the film. Which is shocking. The ideology of this film is very counter to what a lot of people have been fed their entire lives. It's a lot messier, darker, confusing, thought-provoking. You bring in a lot of the old familiar catchphrases, depiction does not equal endorsement, Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. But you do wonder exactly what the message is behind some of these things. And I think that it's ideologically like a tricky terrain like a it's a weird thing to cover to go from one side of this film to the other and think like what exactly is the message what are we supposed to think about these things and i just think it's very distant from how a lot of your millennials younger millennials gen z gen y all these younger i don't know what the fuck all these things are called but how people all think about these things now and how a lot of their entertainment is ideologically based in a way that's much more soothing and pleasing this is like cold water thrown in your face uh, and being so detached from humanity and everybody's a bad guy who's in it for themselves basically yeah and this is a a much larger subject that we will have to tackle over the course of this episode rather than just trying to do Mm -hmm. it now but yeah but there's countless examples i would start that i would just say that this movie has more of a centrist view that is definitely not in vogue anymore Mm mm-hmm amongst younger people at least but we'll get more into that as we go because there's so much shit to cover with this movie and it's just a lot i'd say so (laughs) that's all i can say is it's a lot it's definitely one of those movies that i watched as a teen i don't think was really on my radar at all without a friend saying hey i have a dvd of this let's watch it but then as soon as you get into it you start recognizing these characters this would show up in like music videos and stuff you know what i mean like people dressing like right the, the homages and yeah but it was definitely like requiem for a dream for me where i was definitely repulsed by a lot of the surface level things happening not quite at a point in my life where i was able to digest these types of things and probably not digging too deep into the film at that point but was certainly blown away by its existence the film premiered in new york on december 19th 1971 and was released in the united kingdom on january 13th 1972 the film was met with polarized reviews from critics was controversial due to its depictions of graphic violence after it was cited as having inspired copycat acts of violence the film was withdrawn from british cinemas at kubrick's behest and it was also banned in several other countries in the years following, the film underwent a critical reevaluation and gained a cult following. So the film was actually unavailable for public viewing in the UK from 1973 until the year 2000, the year after Stanley Kubrick's death. That's nuts. 
British video stores were so inundated with requests for the movie that some took to putting up signs that read, No, we do not have a Clockwork Orange. And a lot of this was pre-internet. How could you track this stuff down? Well, you couldn't. For whatever reason, I guess there's probably pros and cons to it, but British society seems a little different in terms of artistic freedom because we know about the video nasties situation mm-hmm. and they, there was much more censorship and and things of that nature i'm personally against that i think anyone who's yeah yeah listened to the show kind of gets that vibe but it's a whole different world i think he asked them to remove it not only because he lived over there and was getting death threats and everything else but also because it seemed possible to yeah, pull yeah. it in britain whereas once it's out in america it seemed like there was no way you were gonna be able to put that rabbit back in the hat but just imagine being a cinephile during this time and you just like cannot get a copy of this it would be like the holy grail i think there were some bootleg underground copies because there was a cinema club that got in trouble for playing in the 90s so what exactly happened well the two copycat crimes that prompted kubrick to have the film withdrawn in the united kingdom were the rape of a dutch girl in lancashire in 1973 at the hands of men singing singing in the rain Ugh. And the violence of a 16-year-old boy who had beaten a younger child while wearing Alex's uniform of white overalls, a black bowler hat, and combat boots. Hmm. Christine Kubrick, the director's wife, has said that the family received threats and had protesters outside their home. The film was withdrawn from British release in 1973 by Warner Brothers at the request of Kubrick. In response to allegations that the film was responsible for copycat violence, Kubrick stated... To try and fasten any responsibility on art as the cause of life seems to me to put the case the wrong way around. Art consists of reshaping life, but it does not create life nor cause life. Furthermore, to attribute powerful suggestive qualities to a film is at odds with the scientifically accepted view that even after deep hypnosis in a post-hypnotic state, people Hmm. cannot be made to do things which are at odds with their natures. I do agree with him, although some of it sounds a little Lancaster Dodd. (laughs) But it is just an unfortunate reality that these things happen from movies and art. Stanley Kubrick's widow Christine revealed during an interview decades later how frantic and terrified she and her husband were during the frenzy of controversy over the film. She said, Stanley was mesmerized by the language of the book. Not for one moment did I think, oh my God, there will be trouble. The film didn't show any true cruelty. Hmm. I mean, I don't know if I agree with her on that. We had press in front of our house. We started receiving horrible letters, and then came the detailed death threats. The police said, I think you would be better off leaving the country. Then we were really alarmed, so Stanley phoned Warner Brothers and begged to have the film withdrawn. He was right to do it. It was a whole to-do, and even though I think Rotten Tomatoes now has A Clockwork Orange sitting around 88% or something like that, and you heard about the money it made and you heard about the Oscar nominations, it was definitely not smooth sailing. The critics were very split on it. Ebert wrote like an eviscerating review, hated it. Mm. He softened up a little bit more in the 90s, which is something he always seemed to do whenever a movie he hated became popular and undeniable. But... He wasn't alone. Pauline Kael was another prominent critic that thought it was pornographic and dehumanizing. Yeah, I mean, there's scenes in it that are hard to stomach. Yeah, I just think that Kubrick didn't quite see it the same way as a lot of the audience. And there is a certain amount of naivete involved, I think, with him. Mm -hmm. Not 
grasping the fact that some of the subject matter was going to be a huge deal for some people. He had a certain detachment from the violence and I think was filing it so heavily under satire that he didn't really grasp that it was still being shown and it was still being shown at a time when people weren't necessarily used to seeing some of this shit. Right. It was all quite shocking. But yes, Kubrick referred to it as a satire more than once. The the film's star, Malcolm McDowell, referred to it as a black comedy, and that's Mm -hmm. what they felt like they were making the whole time. And he felt like audiences would have to appreciate it more in the future, and I think we did reach that peak. But as I was alluding to earlier, I think we've passed that peak, and now we're at a point where I think audiences would receive it even worse than they did in 1971. After the massive success of Kubrick's game-changing 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, he set out to make a large-scale biopic about Napoleon Bonaparte, a project he believed could be the greatest film ever made. He actually said that at one point. (laughs) Wow. What happened? Kubrick invested an insane amount of time in research, meticulous planning, location scouting, and even early potential casting at one point David Hemmings and then Jack Nicholson in the male lead Audrey Hepburn in the female lead oh this was going to be a huge biopic epic I'm interested the director was also going to film the battle scenes in Romania and had enlisted the support of the Romanian People's Army senior army officers had committed 40,000 soldiers and 10,000 cavalrymen to Kubrick's film for the paper costume battle scenes. Napoleon was eventually canceled due to the prohibitive cost of location filming. The Western release of Sergei Bondarchuk's epic film version of Leo Tolstoy's novel War and Peace and the commercial failure of Bondarchuk's Napoleon-themed film Waterloo. Hmm. A significant portion of Kubrick's historical research would ultimately influence Barry Lyndon which was released in 75, the storyline of which ends in 1789, approximately 15 years prior to the commencement of the Napoleonic Wars. Okay, so he scaled down a little bit. In March 2013, Steven Spielberg announced his intention to create, in conjunction with Kubrick's family, a television miniseries based on Kubrick's screenplay. In May 2016, HBO announced that it would produce a miniseries based on Kubrick's screenplay with Kerry Joji Fukunaga mm. as director. And yes, after 13 years or so, Jack Nicholson is supposedly going to be in this. Wow. I don't really believe it. Yeah. But he is supposedly going to be cast in this. Playing what, I don't know. He was at the uh, Lakers game the other day for the first time in quite a while, I think. Yeah, there was some public pictures of him that came out a week or so earlier. He basically looked the same. I don't know why people acted like he looked bad. I was like, yeah, it's what he's looked like for a while. He's an old man. Yeah, I think he just turned 86. Look, if he's up to it and he can do it, that would be very exciting. That would be cool. I'm filing that under, I'll believe it when I actually see it. Sure. Because the pace. Fucking Spielberg announces this 10 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In 2013, and they still haven't done it yet. Now, I know more news is coming, and it seems like they're getting closer to actually doing it, but my God. Hmm. <laughs> Sometimes the wheels are very slow Yeah, yeah. for these things. Yeah, this screenplay has crossed oceans of time. They should just have Nicholson play Napoleon as 
An 86-year-old fat man <laughs> who looks crazy. That's right. <laughs> Screenplay writer Terry Southern gave Kubrick a copy of the novel A Clockwork Orange, but as he was developing that Napoleon film, he put it aside. Kubrick's wife, in an interview, said she had given Kubrick the novel after having read it herself. Kubrick said, quote, I was very excited by everything about it, the plot, the ideas, the characters, and, of course, the language. The story functions, of course, on several levels, political, sociological, philosophical, and what's most important, on a dreamlike, psychological, symbolic level. Kubrick wrote a screenplay faithful to the novel, saying, I think whatever Burgess had to say about the story was said in the book, but I did invent a few useful narrative ideas and reshape some of the scenes. Kubrick based the script on the shortened U.S. edition of the book, which omitted the final chapter. We'll talk more about that at the end. But it was a little bit of a weird journey to get to Kubrick, because Mm -hmm. first, Anthony Burgess originally sold the rights to Mick Jagger for $500. How about that? And I believe that's all Burgess ever made was that original 500. Holy shit. When he needed quick cash, Jagger intended to make it with the Rolling Stones as the Droogs, but then resold the rights for a much larger amount. Ken Russell was then nominated to direct hmm. because his style was considered well-suited for the material. Mick Jagger, a savvy businessman capitalizing on an investment. He would have cast Oliver Reed as Alex Tinto Brass was another possible director. I have a feeling if Tinto Brass was the director, we'd have a lot more women's asses in the mix, <laughs> considering it was all, that's all of his films. Yeah. At some point, someone suggested rewriting the Droogs to be girls in miniskirts or old-age penciners. Hmm. Tim Curry and Jeremy Irons both tested for the role of Alex. Stanley Kubrick once said, if Malcolm McDowell hadn't been available, I probably wouldn't have made the film. Author Anthony Burgess initially distrusted Kubrick as a director, but was happy with the results. He felt the film later made the book, one of his least favorite books he had written, overshadow his other work. Well, of course. uh, Based on what you've told me, the book is far darker even than the movie. What do you mean? Even though what? I just, why is that the thing that makes you not like it? How about just the material on its own? He just said that of his books, it was his one of his least favorite that he had written. Mm-hmm. But now, because of the film, it's overshadowed yeah, everything yeah. else he's ever written. Which I think is par for the course. Sure, <laughs> that's going to happen when there's something like this, this massive. Burgess was raised in a strict Roman Catholic household, even though he did have an obsession with the tarot. He originally wrote his novel as a parable about Christian free will and forgiveness. His take on it was... That to be a true Christian, one had to forgive the most horrifying of acts, something Burgess knew only too well, having seen his wife be assaulted and beaten by American soldiers during World War II. Good Lord. This attack resulted in a miscarriage and a lifetime of gynecological troubles for his wife. All right, well, that's horrific. So yes, it did emerge from real-life darkness, and I think that reflects on the subject matter, but... obviously, but trying to decipher what it means and what what you think of it is a whole other can of worms because the film ultimately seems to be very relevant in today's world when you fixate on one key piece of it, which is what is the point of forcing somebody to be good when it's not their choice to be good? Like, Mm -hmm. how does that work? What does that actually accomplish? And this movie is basically saying that the only way, the only path to true goodness 
is if you actually choose it. Forcing someone to be good is not the same thing. That's like a very high-level way of right. looking at it. Exactly. Not, not too detailed. But <laughs> essentially, look, what's the point of doing this? You're not really making him good. It's not true reformation. Exactly. I think it really applies to today because now when you see how people act on Twitter and you see how the world works now, exactly, you do see a lot of people who seem to think that you can just force things to be the way they want them to be. And it does seem like they'd be happy with that. No matter what it is. And look, some of the times it would be nice if there was no more people being racist on Twitter or there was no more people being casually sexist in public places or whatever the, the case may be. That would be great. But coming up with these ways to try to enforce that, enforce that without actual real choice in the matter is meaningless. And I think it's, it's, it's a futile, impossible task. And I think that's what he's saying in the book and then subsequently in the film as well. And then having it come from such a dark place and trying to reconcile your own experience, something horrific happening, and then making sense of it in a world where you, if you are a true Christian, should have forgiveness in your heart, but it's more difficult to do so. And then I do think that that's recreated on screen through several of the characters, especially the writer, Frank Alexander, who as soon as you realize his own personal stake in it, suddenly has a complete change of what he's thinking. At first he's like, I can be a savior for this dude. And then like, yeah. Once he realizes that, oh, I've had a brush with this gentleman before and it was not very positive, and now is my opportunity for revenge, his mindset is completely different and it's about him. It's not about saving this dude anymore. Yeah. I think with a lot of Kubrick's material, it comes back to, well, what is this really about? What is it saying? Aside from the very obvious stuff, the violence, the rape, the nihilism, what is most disturbing about a clockwork orange and i think there's a lot of things it's Mm. that sickening feeling you get when you realize that everybody is kind of in it for themselves in one way or another and there's a very cynical view of how everyone behaves whether it's the right or the left right even going back to talking about the writer character it's not like he even wants to save alex because he's doing a good thing to help this guy he's doing it to push a political agenda. Right. Yeah. I don't think that that really vibes with how people want to look at the world now. There is sort of this delusion of a sunshine and rainbows utopia that we could all achieve if we are forced to behave in certain ways. Rather than just accepting the harsh reality, which is that the world sucks, a lot of people suck. And most people's opinions are just based off their own experiences. Right. You can't force a square peg in a round hole when it comes to making the world and society the way you want it to be. Even if you think that you have that righteousness on your side. Like, of course, this, 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 and this are wrong. Mm -hmm. Of course. And you may be right. And my opinion is I may agree with you that you're right. But just forcing this to happen isn't the same thing as actual change. Actual change takes a long time. That's right. And so what is the answer then? If you can't reform a criminal the way they do or attempt to with Alex, with the Lunovico treatment technique, then what is the answer? Well, the answer is what it was before, which is if you commit a crime, you go to jail. Well, yeah. You can't just force people to change. It just doesn't work that but way. But also part of the situation with Alex is 
there doesn't seem like there's ever going to be a change here. Well, no, and that's sort of the point. I mean, that's there on the table. There would be no change in anyone. Right. And this technique would never work anyway. Yeah, yeah. It, it could never really happen like but that. But no matter what the reform technique is, though, there is no answer. This person is this person. Well, yes, that is sort of what happens in the film. I don't know if that's the film's message that no one can change ever because they are on such a very specific character. Sure. Because some people... Look, I mean, that can be your takeaway, and that makes the movie even more cynical, yeah. is that no one can ever change, ever. And I'm sure people do sometimes take it that way, but I think there is a difference between yeah. true sociopathy and right. someone who has been raised in a way who doesn't really know better. Alex is certainly an extreme. Yeah, I think he's at the furthest end. But that gets into a whole thing about what this movie is commenting on when it comes to psychiatry and psychological issues and mental illness and those kind of things, too. Because, like I'm trying to say, there's a definitely oh, yeah. a difference between a mental illness and someone who has done a few bad things because either the way they were raised or because they are economically disadvantaged or whatever the situation is. There's, there's a definitely a difference between sociopathy and crime. I'm getting, like images from the end of Sopranos when Dr. Melfi's reading about sociopaths that you can't help and they're yeah. not going to react to therapy. A light bulb just goes off all these years. Nowadays we live in a world that very much villainizes centrism, but this film takes the opposite approach, which is that centrism is the only safe haven for rational people and that fascism comes from all sides. Again, not necessarily the most popular message today i was saying that even though this movie is made by god hmm. pre-baby boomers really oh yeah talking, like greatest generation in terms of this book came out in 1962 for god's sakes Holy but hell ultimately it's very much a gen x vibe of a movie everything sucks <laughs> yeah. everyone's terrible there is no hope not really a millennial or gen z vibe that's no for no sure yeah that's all i can really say and again, I would say that more about the message of the film than anything that actually happens in the film, even though that's certainly problematic for people too. But it's more the deeper message of the movie, once you start digging into it, that I think that people would have a bigger problem with now. I know. Like I said, when I watched this for the first time, the carefree nature in which they were carrying out these horrific acts, that really struck me, bothered me, was tough for me to handle. According to author Anthony Burgess, the title of the book and the movie came from East London slang deriving from the phrase, as queer as a clockwork orange. No independent references are known, however, and it is thought that Burgess invented the phrase himself. Can't really tell now. Yeah. He died a long time ago. I had no idea what the title meant when I saw the movie. Well, there's more meaning to, to it, it yeah. than just that, but we'll get to that later. The Please. language spoken by Alex and his droogs is the author Anthony Burgess's invention, which is referred to as NADSAT, mm. a mix of English, Russian, and slang. Stanley Kubrick was afraid that they had used too much of it and that the movie would not be accessible. The original edition of the novel suffered from similar criticisms, and a NADSAT glossary appendix was added to the second and subsequent editions. Oh, fun. I needed that. Didn't really affect me at all. No. No. Gulliver. <laughs> head. The vodka. I thought gold might be stomach. 
I think there's a few context clues. Yeah, I do think it is head most of the time, but there's one part where he's talking about not feeling well in his gulliver, and I thought he was like touching his stomach. I don't know. Yeah. The film focuses on Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell, the central character. He's an antisocial delinquent, but he's also charismatic, scary, intelligent. In a lot of ways, he represents the unrestrained id of man, full of candor, says what's on his mind, does whatever he wants, does not seem limited by society or rules or laws, free to do as he pleases, ignores teachers, parents, anybody, any authority figures. Totally. He has a strong affinity for classical music, especially Beethoven, which is strange. I agree. I was not expecting that to be a character quirk of his. Well, think about when the novel was written how much music did not even exist well yet. that's true yeah In pre-beatles right? uh well pre uh the new age of rock music we'll say that alex's hobbies include rape theft and ultra violence as he calls it and we exist in a dystopian near future in britain where there is a heavy russian influence especially on the language which of course leads to its own connotations McDowell was chosen for the role of Alex after Kubrick saw him in the film If from 1968. When asking why he was picked for the role, Kubrick told him, you can exude intelligence on the screen. He also helped Kubrick on the uniform of Alex's gang when he showed Kubrick the cricket whites he had. Kubrick asked him to put the jockstrap not under but on top of the costume. It is a peculiar look. I don't know that I would quite be interested in joining this gang wardrobe reasons alone. Alex leads a small gang of like-minded thugs. Pete, played by Michael Tarn, Georgie, played by James Marcus, and Dim, played by Warren Clark. He but, refers to them as droogs. Uh-huh. When you first meet these dudes, I'm definitely not like, oh, they're in school. <laughs> they're school-age boys. Droogs has a Russian origin as well. Kind of comes from a word meaning friends or buddies. A Clockwork Orange chronicles their horrific crime spree, Alex's capture, and then attempted rehabilitation via an experimental psychological conditioning technique called the Ludovico Technique, promoted by the Minister of the Interior, played by Anthony Sharp. The film employs disturbing, violent images to comment on a wide array of subjects, including psychiatry, juvenile delinquency, youth gangs, as well as other social, political, and economic subjects. It's pretty easily defined as a cinematic powder keg, if you will. But whether or not you find yourself agreeing or disagreeing with what you perceive Kubrick's intentions to be, at the end of the day, A Clockwork Orange operates as a bit of a thought experiment, at the very least, is there any point in trying to force someone to be good? What could possibly come of this? I guess theoretically, if it worked, that would be great, and everyone would be fine, but I guess the whole point is that nothing like this would ever work. It would be impossible. It would also lead to a whole plethora of other issues, you could potentially have people who hadn't been picked up and had the technique done to them yet take advantage of the situation of the people who had because quite clearly you're in a scenario where you're even oh, yeah. unable to defend yourself from an attacker or anything of that nature. The whole end result 
is ludicrous. There's really no way. Let's just get into this program, and then I can get out of jail. Right, but you would be left weakened, though. That's my whole point. Well, yeah. Once you go through the treatment, then anyone can do anything they want to you. I'm saying if it worked. Okay, yeah. Not like what it is in the movie. Obviously, if it doesn't work, then yeah, they're not going to offer it to people at a certain point. But right. If it truly worked, like as in you stayed sick and were unable to actually participate, you would be the most vulnerable people in the world. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, it doesn't work. Sure. Because the comparison becomes Pavlov's dog. That's where this comes from, a Pavlonian response. Mm-hmm. However, a dog doesn't know that it's an experiment. Right. Alex is aware he's in an experiment. He yes. knows it's the drugs that make him sick, not the violence. It can never work. Plus, the way they do it in the movie, you would never necessarily be able to sync it up just with violence. Like He would probably have a Pavlovian response to all kinds of things going on, not just what's on the screen. And you wouldn't be able to... Like, I know. You wouldn't be able to control it necessarily. Even like people arguing around him or like general road rage happening. Like there, It just seems like there would be room for constant illness spells. Movie opens with ominous music. Colors that I would describe as violating. <laughs> just bright, <laughs> oh, weird yeah. colors flashing on the screen. You yeah. have Alex with the Kubrick stare. The bowler hat, one eye with the long, dark eyelashes. There is something vaguely... A- androgynous about their whole group too because sometimes it looks like dim is wearing lipstick it's kind of hard to even explain agreed the fashion is very strange because that's the cool thing about these futuristic movies that take place in different eras because Uh then there's still all of these strains of the 1970s in this yeah but then it's also unlike anything else that exists that part of it is really cool and kind of sets the movie apart or gives it another its own unique quality. Well, yeah, that was part of the reason why Burgess wrote this whole new language and incorporated all this slang yeah, from yeah. Russian and all this stuff because he wanted to make it not age. Because it's basically of a time that never existed. It's so weird. Right. The way they talk and act and everything that goes on. Now, on the score, it there does feel like there's a little bit of carryover from 2001 because it's a mix of oppressive, ominous synthesized music and then also classical music playing a big role yeah i think you can definitely tell what type of music kubrick liked to use because there's so. some strains from the shining yeah there yeah as well. there's that one similarities like little main theme when the shining first opens up just those like first four notes or whatever like that same beat is in this <laughs> that beat <laughs> Well, that was classical music, too. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not sure if it's the same piece or not, but there's definitely some similarities. They're drinking Milk Plus at a milk bar. <laughs> I do like Milk Plus <laughs> oh, as yeah. a drink, which they don't really explain super well, but you have the feeling that it has some sort of intoxicating quality to it. Yeah, I didn't get that until uh, this time around, that they're like kind of listing off drugs that are in it. There's some human furniture. They're not real women, but naked mannequin women for the tables and also the the milk dispenser with the milk coming out of the breasts of the mm-hmm. naked woman seems yeah. like quite a hangout i don't know i'm oftentimes watching movies thinking to myself oh this seems like my type of joint not here this does not look like a place for i me. think i'd hang out here yeah yeah this seems like your type of joint i'd say <laughs> Kurova milk bar is named after the russian word for cow maloko written on the wall means milk the bar's sculptures were based on the work of sculptor Alan Jones, 
Stanley Kubrick had the milk dispensers emptied, washed, and refilled every hour as the milk curdled under the studio lights. Gross. Yeah, pleasant for everyone. Just use fucking white water. Please. (laughs) There was me. That is Alex. And my three droogs. That is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar, trying to make up our Razoo docs what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus Velocet, or Synthamesque, or Drencrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. In futuristic Britain... Alex is the leader of a gang of droogs with Georgie, Dim, and Pete. Malcolm McDowell chose to play Alex speaking in his normal Northern English accent instead of a Cockney accent. McDowell felt his softer accent would strike an interesting contrast with Alex's menacing personality and also help him stand out amongst his friends. One night after getting intoxicated on drug-laden Milk Plus, they engaged in an evening of the old ultra-violence, which includes a fight with a rival gang. Ah, yes. Our humble narrator lets us know that. It's simple. Guys getting fucked up and getting into trouble. Willfully. They're willfully doing that with the intention of getting into trouble. We just don't know how bad it is until it completely spirals. It's an interesting world that they've managed to create. It's simultaneously wrecked and dirty and crumbling, but then there's also parts of it that are spotless and antiseptic and very abrasively clean and, and direct of any kind of personality. So it's it's both. And I think people have really dug into what the world of A Clockwork Orange is supposed to be. And yeah. I think that the explanation I liked the best was that they are coming out of more of a failed attempt at some kind of a socialist world, and now they're transitioning into an authoritarian regime. It definitely looks like it's a war-torn city. The first guy they encounter is a drunk laying in the underpass. A little bit of a window into the future for me and Matt, I would say. Sure, yeah. Just singing, drunk, laying by himself. They beat him up. That's where it's all heading. City... Where the girls are so pretty, I first set my eyes on sweet Molly Malone, as she wheeled her wheel through streets broad and narrow, crying cockles and muscles. One thing I could never stand was to see a filthy, dirty old drunkie howling away at the filthy songs of his fathers and going blurp, blurp in between, as it might be a filthy old orchestra in his stinking, rotten guts. I could never stand to see anyone like that, whatever his age might be, but more especially when he was real old like this one was. Can you spare some cutter, me brothers? 
Go on, do me in, you bastard cowards. We don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? It's a stinky world because there's no law and order anymore. It's a stinky world because it lets the young get onto the old. Like you don't. Oh, it's no order for an old man any longer. What's up about what it is it at all? Men on the moon and men spinning around the earth and there's not no attention paid to earthly law and order no more. Oh, oh dear the land, I fought for thee and Even though it's a scene where they beat up a defenseless old man, there is an artistry in the madness. It looks really interesting with the blue light and then those very long shadows oh, yeah. down that completely empty underpass. That's what I mean. The fucking building that Alex lives in is like completely destroyed. It seems like a, a holdover from... I, I know. But then the apartment is nice and normal. Kind of, yeah. The yeah. building itself. But then like the underpass, there's not even dirt let alone garbage or anything it's strange the film transitions from alex's group beating the drunk vagrant in the streets to this other group this rival gang billy boy's gang attempting to rape a young woman on the stage of an abandoned theater it's quite jarring we're plunged into a world of non-stop insanity We have roving youth gangs prowling the night with bad intentions. Doesn't really seem to be much of an authority presence yet. It pulls no punches. These guys on the stage, they rip the woman's clothes off. She's screaming. It's full frontal nudity. Explicit. It's also very provocative and salacious. I think there is the intention to make the audience uneasy with the titillation. Obviously, they're going to be uneasy with the violence, but they pick this gorgeous woman, and it's a whole thing that they're trying to accomplish here. If making the viewer uneasy was what they were going for, I would say success. Well, I'm sure a lot of the audience was thinking, this is the fucking guy who made 2001. What am I looking at? Yeah. How do I feel about what I'm seeing? It's a little different now, 50 years later, where we've had 50 years of nudity and violence and all kinds of crazy shit. And most of it isn't even close to this in terms of yeah, yeah. putting it right in your face. But you have to think that a lot of the people seeing this, this was unlike oh, yeah. anything they could have imagined. Well, I watched this for the first time, I don't know, sometime between 15 and 20 years ago. And at that point, it still really disturbed me. I'm 39 years old. If I was 39 in 1971 when this movie came out, that meant I would have a good two decades worth of seeing movies, most of which were under the Hayes Code. Sure. It didn't have things like this. This was pornographic, and he was accused of being a pornographer after this. Kubrick, I mean. Our droogs intervene, and the naked woman manages to escape, so at this point we're thinking, okay, Alex and his buddies are heroes. That's like true, the Ninja yeah, they did, they did save the day, yeah. They're like vigilantes, they've right. shown up and saved this woman. Absolutely. So you're thinking, okay, all right, well, they beat up the drunk in the streets for no reason. Maybe they're a little too hard on alcohol abuse, but sure. hey, isn't Batman kind of a fascist too? That's true. It all seems to play. And yeah, the fight is insane. It's like 
kind of an ECW style brawl with some chains and tables. And Insane jumping, like unnecessary jumping. A lot of jumping, yeah. yeah. It's very theatrical and right. over the top. But then, oh wait, Alex and his droogs, they're definitely not the good guys. No, no. Oh, my bad. Here we go. We got a little carried away. We thought we were saving Things that woman. Things take a uh, very dark turn here. Although the car used by Alex and the Droogs was called a Durango 95 in the film, in reality, it is an Adams Probe 16, hmm. one of three ever made. And wow. yes, there was a cut scene of them stealing it. I do think this is one of the iconic shots from this movie, too, just because they're all basically like pouring out of this car. Yeah. Seemingly going like a million miles an hour. After police sirens are heard, Alex and the Droogs head out into the country playing Hogs of the Road. They end up at the country home of writer Frank Alexander. It's a very distinctive driveway and yeah. gate. So on the drive, they pass under like a tractor trailer. Yeah. I was thinking, did they take that a little too confidently? Just flying under. Everybody was in the clear, but it seemed like somebody certainly could have lost a head over that. I probably would have ducked down. Yeah. The house is impressive. Modern architecture. The Droogs gather around the front door and ultimately trick Alexander's wife into letting them inside, although... Although she initially knows is, something's wrong. It is Frank's call for yeah. her to do it. Yes? Who is it? Excuse me, missus. Can you please help? There's been a terrible accident. My friend's in the middle of the road, bleeding to death. Can I please use your telephone for an ambulance? I'm sorry, but we don't have a telephone. You'll have to go somewhere else. But, missus, it's a matter of life and death. Who is it, dear? There's a young man here. He says there's been an accident. He wants to use the telephone. Well, I suppose you'd better let him in. Well, wait a minute, will you? I'm sorry, but we don't usually let strangers in in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> And the Droogs beat Frank to the point of crippling him, and Alex violently rapes Frank's wife while singing, singing in the rain. Mm-hmm. For as fucked up as that sounds, this is truly one of the most known and iconic scenes of the film. I think that the irony of him singing a song like Singing in the Rain is kind of lost on people today, and they yeah. probably think that makes it even more grotesque. 
this was definitely the moment though where I was like, I'm not sure if this is gonna be for me. My delicate sensibilities. Now I'm not comparing how we're supposed to feel about these scenes in any particular way, but for whatever reason that scene, the famous scene from Five Easy Pieces with Nicholson ordering the sandwich and then telling her to put the chicken between her knees mm-hmm. and how audiences would react to that scene then versus now. And people now would be like more on the side of the waitress and be like, right, what right. the fuck's wrong with you? Yeah. Rather than seeing it as some countercultural th- thing. Not that this is ever acceptable in any way. I'm not even trying to make some kind of a case, but I do think that the detachment of the violence that Kubrick has is a very specific thing here. And look, making satire can be hard because Mm. not everyone's going to see it that way. And you're going to have movies that are decades old that people still fight about now and they're not really sure what the point of it is. And I think this scene is like a perfect crystallization of that because I, I think that Kubrick probably thought it was hilarious to have him singing that song. That's not in the book, him singing that song. Yeah, well, he certainly goes back to it later in the movie, so... He was a fan of including this, I think. Well, it was a way for the audience to see how Alexander was going to make that connection as to who this guy was. Mm -hmm. Alex performing Singing in the Rain as he attacks the writer and his wife was not scripted. Stanley Kubrick spent four days experimenting with the scene, finding it too conventional. Eventually, he approached Malcolm McDowell and asked him if he could dance. They tried the scene again, this time with McDowell dancing and singing the only song he could remember. Kubrick was so amused he swiftly bought the rights to Singing in the Rain for $10,000, which comes out to about $76,500 in 2022, adjusted for inflation. When McDowell later met Gene Kelly at a party several years later, the older star turned and walked away in disgust. Kelly was (laughs) deeply upset about the way his signature from Singing in the Rain had been portrayed. I bet. In a clockwork orange. I guess what I was saying was with comparisons to the five easy pieces thing is that decades change the way we perceive the scenes. I don't want to imply at all that there was ever a good way of looking. Oh, people are like, Oh, this is cool. Yeah. It was more of like, what's that fucking movie? I, uh, I think, uh, Carl Reiner made it. Where's Papa or how's Papa or Mm. whatever the fuck that movie is. I don't know. With George Siegel. There was just a very weird relationship with sexual assault in the 70s. There just really was. There's so much evidence of it in these I old do movies. believe that, yeah. There's a very cavalier attitude about it, which is, of course, terrible. But you have to put yourself in that mindset, I guess, to fully appreciate the context of these kind of moments in, the, in this film. But for us, when they come in with their masks and they're being loud and crazy and scary, it is reminiscent of funny games which doesn't really have a trace of humor or satire no. to it. But I think what we're trying to get to, both of us, more it's more than the violence or the sexual violence. It's the attitude towards it that is a, a little bit jarring. It's Definitely. the biggest obstacle. The callousness to it. But I do think that it's also crucial in making the point they're trying to make. Mm-hmm. If they meditated over these heavy moments and gave them the gravitas that they should have, you're talking about a completely different movie at that point. Yeah. At the end of the night, it's a return to the Karova bar. A woman sings some Beethoven, which causes Dim to make a fart sound, I guess, when she's <laughs> yeah. done, which infuriates Alex because he has such reverence for Ludwig van, as right. he calls him. And this what is the first sign animal? of trouble in paradise. Yeah. 
Some paradise this is. Signs of discontent amongst the Droogs, because Beethoven is Alex's obsession. Yeah, and he's definitely the alpha male of the group and calls the shots, and you can start to tell that not everybody's thrilled about the arrangement here. Alex's apartment building, we alluded to it before. He lives with his parents. It's crazy that people actually live in this building. It looks like it could be condemned by the lobby and the elevator and all that stuff. Although, as you said, the actual interior of their apartment seems reasonable enough. There's some obscene artwork on his wall. There's some defaced artwork in the lobby. He has a loot drawer filled with wallets, cash, watches, showing that the night's activities that we've just seen are not a new thing. Totally. He also keeps a large python in a drawer, which doesn't really seem safe safe for the python. No, or <laughs> anyone involved. It seems like a miserable existence. Most yeah. of the time I live in a drawer. <laughs> The snake Basil was introduced into the film by Kubrick when he found out Malcolm McDowell had a fear of reptiles. (laughs) The stated purpose was to make McDowell's character seem more intimidating, but secondarily it functioned as a practical joke by Kubrick. Wow. Because the snake is not in the book either. He has those Jesus statues in a chorus line, blasphemous, like right off the cross. His mom's got blue hair. Later she'll have different color hairs. Yeah, yeah. His parents seem completely oblivious. His dad is Grady from The Shining, the actor Philip Stone. Scary on its own. Although he is completely oblivious. He's more out of it than the mom, even. Definitely. And the mom's completely insane. When she's like, you gotta get up for school, I'm like, what? He's in school? Well, yeah. (laughs) He's supposed to be 17. In the book, he's supposed to be even younger. It's a little bit of a surprise that he even lives at home with his parents. Like, that part of it is like a shock. Hi, 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 Mr. Deltoid. Funny surprise seeing you here. Uh, Alec, boy, awake at last, yes? I met your mother on the way to work, yes? She gave me the key. She says something about a pain somewhere, hence not at school, yes? A rather intolerable pain in the head, brother, sir. I think it should be clear by this after lunch. Oh, or certainly by this evening, yes. The evening's the great time, isn't it, Alex, boy? Cup of the old chai, sir? No time, no time, yes. Sit, sit, sit. To what do I owe this extreme pleasure, sir? Anything wrong, sir? Wrong? Why should you think of anything being wrong? Have you been doing something you shouldn't? Yes. Just a manner of speech, sir. Yes, but it's just a manner of speech from your post-corrective advisor to you that you watch out, little Alex, because next time it's not going to be the corrective school anymore. Next time it's going to be the barry place and all my work ruined. If you've no respect for your horrible self, you at least might have some for me, who've sweated over you. A big black mark, I tell you, for everyone we don't reclaim. A confession of failure for every one of you who ends up in the stripy hole. I've been doing nothing I shouldn't, sir. The militants have nothing on me, brother. Sir, I mean. 
Shut up, this clever talk about Millicent just because the police haven't picked you up lately doesn't, as you very well know, mean that you've not been up to some nastiness. There was a bit of a nastiness last night, yes? Some very extreme nastiness, yes? A few of a certain Billy Boy's friends were ambulanced off late, yes? Your name was mentioned. The words got through to me by the usual channel. Certain friends of yours were named also. Oh, nobody can prove anything about anybody, as usual. And I'm warning you, little Alex, being a good friend to you as always, the one man in this sore and sick community who wants to save you from yourself. What gets into all? We study the problem. We've been studying it for damn well near a century, yes, but we get no farther with our studies. You've got a good home here, good loving parents. You've got not too bad of a brain. Is it some devil that crawls inside of you? Nobody's got anything on me, brother, sir. I've been out of the Rukas of the Millicents for a long time now. And that's just what worries me a bit too long to be safe. You're about due now by my reckoning. That's why I'm warning you, little Alex, to keep your handsome young proboscis out of the dirt. Do I make myself clear? As an unmudded lake, sir. As clear as an azure sky of deepest summer. You can rely on me, sir. In the morning, once again truant from school, Alex receives a surprise visit at home by his probation officer, P.R. Deltoid, played by Aubrey Morris, who we would remember briefly appearing in the wicker man he was in a lot of stuff he's very recognizable he's a that guy for yeah, sure. yeah you just know that face and he's doing an insane performance here definitely yes a little cartoony yeah well i think a lot of the actors in kubrick's entire career were always a little concerned about what he was asking them to do right and yet it always kind of works for his movies yeah I think Nicholson was, was little... even like, I, I feel like this is too much in The Shining. And Everything's he's like, like a... more and more and more. Always off center. He is aware of Alex's activities and he cautions him. Yes. Yeah. It's a weird scene because Alex is wearing only tidy whitey underwear. And then at one point he lays down and Deltoid lays next to him. Yeah, there is like a weird sexuality with, oh, I would say, every interaction in this movie. And then he grabs, it's Deltoid crunch. grabs Alex's dick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's a lot different, I believe, than how he's portrayed in the book. In the film, Deltoid is sadistic and also possibly has a romantic interest in Alex. Mm. If you take that as a context clue, I don't really know what that means. He's like pulling like a Kevin Spacey at a bar. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like he's doing it to injure here. Yeah, but that's not something you do without there being a reason. Well, okay, I agree. It's a weird thing, because especially when you remember he's supposed to be a high schooler. Yeah, yeah. But Deltoid's appearance does not force Alex to go back to school. Instead, he heads to the record store where he picks up two young lovelies and then brings them back to his apartment for a fun little afternoon. Absolutely. The record store looks super cool. This is definitely one of the things where you're like, oh, yeah, we are in this weird futuristic world, but it's also... And yet I could also see a place like that existing in London in the 70s. Yeah. According to McDowell on the commentary track from the 2007 DVD release, the sped-up sex scene was originally filmed as an unbroken take that lasted 28 minutes. Wow. Obviously, they weren't going to use all 28 minutes, but it's funny because 
the way they did it was Kubrick would basically just say go and then they would do it, and there wasn't really a lot of choreography to the whole thing. That would be an interesting day on set. Well, in this day and age, you would have to have a an intimacy coordinator, sure. as they call them. But instead, McDowell was left on his own to freestyle. And so like a little bit of it makes it into the movie where these girls keep getting up and getting redressed. And then oh, yeah. he like undresses them again and right. just keeps going over and over. And I think at one point, he's carrying one of them back to the bed. And Kubrick was just yelling, enough, enough. <laughs> like it just kept going and going and going and going. Wow. <laughs> Obviously, we're watching it on fast forward, but it does seem like quite a lengthy endeavor it seems like the potential is there to, for him to be a normal healthy right functioning member of society but he just but, has to do these horrible things yeah after his vigorous role in the hay with these two young ladies alex is surprised to discover his fellow droogs in the lobby of his apartment building already waiting for him even though they weren't scheduled to be there it isn't really like them to act spontaneous this, coupled with Dim's outburst the previous evening, feels suddenly kind of troubling. Alex's comrades express discontent yeah. with petty crime and want more equality and high-yield thefts. So something's clearly brewing, and it might have been brewing oh, yeah. for quite some time. And his guard is coming up. He can tell something's off. As I am your droog and leader, I'm excited to know what goes on, eh? <laughs> now then, Dim... What does that great big horsey gape of a grin put in? All right, no more picking on Dim, brother. That's part of the new way. New way? What's this about a new way? There's been some very large talk behind my sleeping back at Noera. Well, if you must have it, have it then. We go around shop cresting and the like, coming out with a pitiful rooker full of money each. Pitiful rookerful. And as will the English and the muscle man coffee mester oh, saying he can fence anything that any male chick tries to crest. Yeah. The shiny stuff, shiny the ice. Stuff. The big, big, big money's available is what will the English say. Big, big money. And what will you do with the big, big, big money? Have you not everything you need? If you need a motor car, you pluck it from the trees. If you need pretty Polly, you take it. Brother, you think and talk sometimes like a little child. A little child, yeah. <laughs> Tonight we pull a man-sized crest. Tonight's a man-sized crest. Good! Real on a show. Yeah. Initiative comes to them that way. I've taught you much, my little droogies. Now tell me what you had in mind, Georgie boy. This minor uprising does not please Alex. He asserts his authority by attacking them physically, believing he's setting things right and putting everyone back in their place. It's really just Dim and Georgie who he goes after. They hit the water, a cut for Dim with the knife. Pete backing up, saying, hey, you know, this doesn't really concern me, heading for the hills as the shit's going down. But this little fight amongst the droogs gives us a temporary, if not suspicious, peace for the moment. Later, a plan from Georgie has Alex invade the home of a wealthy cat lady who operates a health farm. They attempt to enter her property with the same M.O. as the previous night. Well, she reads us, She reads the papers. She's suspicious and calls the police. Alex then enters through an open window. The droogs remain outside. 
Alex and the woman fight. Ironically, her weapon of choice is a bust of Beethoven. Alex bludgeons her with a large phallic sculpture. I was like, I kind of want that giant penis. Yeah, that would be a fun decoration. Did you take that to be a penis and a butt? Or a penis and balls. It's kind of hard to tell what that's supposed to be. So I think on previous viewings, <laughs> penis and balls, but I think on this one I switched to penis and butt. <laughs> Asking the important questions. Yeah, yeah. I actually really liked her wild paintings and decorations. Yeah, she's almost like she's as, got as an if some artist yeah. took a, a issue of Hustler and was right. like, I'm going to just make these into paintings. I know. I was a little surprised to not see those on your walls here. <laughs> I should, well, I'll look yeah. it up and see if I can find them. <laughs> Upon hearing the sirens of the approaching police, Alex tries to flee, but Dim smashes a bottle in his face, stunning Alex and leaving him to be arrested. And so now we're 45 minutes into the film. This is a 45-minute setup for this moment, and I would consider a dramatic shift now. Definitely. As I was saying to you before we started recording, aside from Alex's eyes being clamped open which is definitely the most iconic imagery from the film, mm-hmm. and everyone always references it. Aside from just that, everything else that you probably think of, the most famous stuff, comes from this first 45 minutes. Totally. The structure of the film is undeniably strange. Yeah, because you always feel like there should be more to this opening piece. Yeah, and I do think that some of the detractors, including Ebert, were initially kind of critical about how the final third of the movie feels like the final half. And at first you're kind of like, what does that even mean? And all he's really saying is the final third seems like it takes forever. It seems way longer than just the last little bit. And I kind of agree with that. Although you get used to it the more times you watch the movie. I think your expectations are a little thrown out of whack because the structure is so different from other movies that you're expecting something different. Right. But once you get used to the flow, you kind of get it. But in terms of like the action and intensity, it's way cranked up in the first 45, and then it's like a slow descent the rest of the way, mm-hmm. and it almost seems like it ends on a whimper in a weird way. Yeah. Not that you could ever condone Alex's behavior, but you would almost wish that instead of him just implying that he's back to his old ways at the end, you would actually see a little bit of it, just because I know. the ending does sort of just fizzle out, and you're like, oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it is abrupt. However... Having said that, it's not as if I'm encouraging people to tune out right now because, oh, the rest of the movie's boring. I think that when you watch it and you really research it and you get into all of this stuff, you understand that the first third is the most titillating, but there's a lot more to glean from the final two-thirds. Agreed. Especially the final third. I know the crux of everything that goes on with Alex happens in that middle section, but I think ideologically i took more out of all the other characters yeah this time around and like him having those interactions meeting back up with these people from the past and their actions and how that speaks to the overall ideas of the film i definitely took more away from that this time around i can't presume to get into kubrick's head but i would imagine that he saw the first third as a means to an end even though that is the part of the film everyone references or thinks about but the real important stuff was coming later and mm-hmm. stuff that the movie is really about. And that's why he probably had this big detachment from that violence because he didn't think it was that important. Right. And then, obviously, that's what people were going to react to in a much bigger way. And it blew up a little bit. Because, as I alluded to, 
Stanley Kubrick ended up having a complicated relationship with a clockwork orange thanks to the controversies and fallout. Chalk it up to an artist's inherent naivete, I guess. Genuine surprise when the whole world doesn't ultimately see your vision the same way that you do. Yeah, I think if you're able to t- take a step back. Okay, this is pretty shocking and intense for people to take in, but I don't know. I guess it's just like you have an idea and a message in your head, and you just expect that everyone's going to see it the way you you are meaning to portray it. But initially, Kubrick was just as protective over it as you would imagine an insane perfectionist like himself would be. He's coming off of one of the most significant achievements in the brief history of film. This is his follow-up. And he's created such a singular, memorable world. Sonically, visually, film fans will recognize the cues from A Clockwork Orange forever. The first cut, before Kubrick hired several assistant editors, ran nearly four hours. But when he was satisfied that was that, he had an assistant destroy all unused footage. No director's cut necessary. (laughs) Holy shit, yeah. But it wasn't like he was completely oblivious either. On some level... He had to know he was pushing the envelope. Obviously, he didn't think there would be detailed death threats for his family, but he knew A Clockwork Orange was an explosive film. He was afraid theater owners would edit the movie so every week the reels would be exchanged for a clean, inspected copy. Now, if that's true, and I have no reason to think it isn't, then you can't paint the story that this guy was completely caught off guard by where this went once it was released. You can't be thinking... I'm afraid they're going to edit this movie, but at the same time, why is everyone so upset with this movie? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of both. Obviously, it went over a line that he wasn't expecting when it got a little too personal, but it's not as if he didn't know right. at all. After 2001, perhaps as a reaction to how that film was made and the equipment necessary to do it, Kubrick made A Clockwork Orange a little more DIY, grounded in more affordable, more realistic options, a different kind of experience. The film was shot almost entirely on real locations as opposed to sets and was lit almost entirely with a Lowell kit, which is a staple for film students a lot more simplistic than a lot of other major motion pictures would necessarily use. Because of the limited budget, various techniques had to be used, such as dolly shots on wheelchairs, sound recorded live on set, the use of natural light, and some scenes in handheld cameras. The Clockwork Orange was also one of the first films to employ radio mics to record the sound. No looping, which is overdubbing to a loop of the film, oh, was wow. required. Kubrick's perfectionism did not stop once the cameras were off, either. He handled the advertising campaign including posters, commercials, the trailer, etc. Imagine uh, what that was like. I think the moral of the story is art is painful and ultimately uncontrollable once it's out in the world. and You have no idea what's actually going to happen. Well, it can cause some reactions and sometimes ones that you don't want. I'm going to kill your fucking family. <laughs> yeah. You piece of shit. Right. I took my children to see a clockwork orange. <laughs> Meanwhile, the film was rated X. Right. I don't know what people were yeah, expecting. Yeah, yeah, come on. So Alex has been arrested, and then Deltoid arrives, bringing word that the cat lady woman has died of her injuries. (laughs) You are now a murderer, little Alex. A murderer. 
Not true, sir. <laughs> it was only a slight tall chock. She was breathing, I swear it. <laughs> I've just come from the hospital. Your victim has died. You try to frighten me, admit so, sir. <laughs> this is some new form of torture. Say it, brother, sir. It'll be your own torture. I hope to God it'll torture you to madness. It's a fun little moment where he's crouching right in Alex's face and you get the the POV shots and then Deltoid spits in his face. <laughs> really insult to injury. It's all very quick and efficient. Alex is convicted of murder and sentenced to 14 years in prison. By the way, the book actually never specifies what Alex's last name is. Okay. In the scene with the two music-loving girls, yeah. he refers to himself as Alexander the Large. Wow. So McDowell ad-libbed the name DeLarge, which I guess is a pun on okay. the large, when he's being registered into prison. So it's original to the film and not the novel. However, this leads to a continuity error later in the film. If you pay really close attention to those newspapers, they referred to him as Alex Burgess or Burgess, giving okay. him the same last name as Anthony wow. Burgess, the, the author. I got to tell you, I found the 14-year sentence a little light. Yeah. It's still within the realm of believability, though. If but it's not first-degree murder, you'd sure. be surprised sometimes how light sometimes it'll play out to be. Okay, but he Although, was already yeah, on probation. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It seems unlikely, but that might be part of the commentary as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to tell. It could be. you're talking about a different country yeah. 50 years there's ago. A, the police aren't portrayed all that well in the movie, so I'm sure there's things that could be said about the court system as well. Yeah, it's something that escapes my own personal knowledge or experience because, like I said, different country. Sure. 50 years ago, but also supposed to be in the future. Yeah. It's too many hurdles for me to jump to figure out if they're trying to make a point with that or not. And I I count on you for this information, so if you don't know, then. These scenes do drag a bit. They're all done very slowly and at a pace. And I was thinking, could I cut time out of a clockwork orange if i wanted to and i think you can out of this section of this prison stuff yeah this is all very follow the rules who's the boss type of rehabilitation strip search there's yeah. a certain level of humiliation to it this is all supposed to depict the old school traditional right way you have the hellfire and brimstone from the prison chaplain who i believe kubrick referred to as possibly the only moral character in the film was the prison chaplain okay yeah it's not the darkest depiction of prison i've ever seen in film no you have that one guy who's winking and smooching yeah true but they don't get into the whole shower rape scenario right although i guess there would be some sort of a poetic justice true for that happening to alex but they don't really go that route alex shows a lot of quote-unquote interest in the bible however we know as viewers because we see it his fantasies really are just of being a Roman soldier whipping and killing Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he, which it, is further illustrating that Alex is just a fucked up dude. He's reading yeah. the Bible and the things that he's taking away from it is like all the stuff that's horrible in the Old Testament or whatever. He's like, this is great. There's a lot of yeah. sex and violence and that's what he fixates on. Alex envisions biblical times as something akin to Caligula. Yes. Which is ironic, I guess. Since Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell is yeah. actually in the film Caligula eight years later. Right. But on the surface, he's a model prisoner. He's doing a great job at concealing his inner thoughts and desires. 
Two years into his sentence, Alex hears about a new program, something that essentially reforms the prisoner all at once and thus allows for early release. It's called the Ludovico Technique, the Minister of the Interior's new experimental aversion therapy for rehabilitating criminals within two weeks. Alex is eager to be a test subject. He's trying to put out the narrative that he's so desperate to be good. Oh, yeah. That's where he's going with it, but obviously he just wants to get out of prison. Seeing this as a way out. Two years is enough. Right. (laughs) This is bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm bored as hell. There's only so many times you can read the Old Testament. That's right. Although I was a fan of the amount of pornography on his prison cell wall. Yeah, he's figured it out. He's figured out the living situation. (laughs) Sure enough, it's going to happen. Alex is transferred to the Ludovico treatment facility with the expectation he will be a free man within weeks Alex is strapped to a chair, his eyes are clamped open, and he is injected with drugs. He is then forced to watch films of sex and violence, which cause him to be sick thanks to the drugs. This whole operation is a visual that sparked a million jokes, a million memes. Mm-hmm. It's an iconic picture. I'm taking a picture of my television, sending it to Matt, oh, saying yeah. it's me watching Chelsea Football Club play this season. For Endlessly, any of you who follow uh, the Premier League, you know that that's probably true. <laughs> Forcing myself to watch these terrible games. Can fit into any meme. Hey, at least you're not an Everton fan. That's true. It's a bad time right now. <laughs> that's true, but if you're an Everton yeah. fan, then that, that's, that's what you deserve. <laughs> I, well, I'm sure our UK listeners... Are already horrified to find out that Matt was a Man City fan and then oh, yeah. finding out I'm a Chelsea fan on top of it. We had some uh, glory hunters over here. Listen to this. Had some Arsenal fans over the house yesterday. Oof. God, probably got Just tense. Hard times for people right now, yeah. Just bottling it so hard. It's <laughs> Spurs-esque right yeah. now. <laughs> the slip. Or yeah, Gerard, the right. slip. Look, if you're a UK listener and you support a real team, mm-hmm. Obviously, you're better than us. But sure. Yeah. Matt and I had to pick good teams. So we could we watch them on TV. It. it was a lot more limited in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. when we started. I've been following Chelsea since like 09 or 10 and then got more into it, admittedly, after their first Champions League win. But I was still, I knew about the transfers and I watched some games. Yeah, yeah. Because back in those days, over 10 years ago, in America, you could really only watch the big clubs. Like, if you wanted to follow a smaller team, it just didn't seem worth the effort. Maybe that's lazy, but I was like, well, if I picked Everton, for example, because oh, they had a U.S. Yeah. goalie at the time, right? How would I have watched their games? I would only watch their games when they got to play against the big teams. Yeah, and now you you'd be right back there because they're <laughs> heading down. <laughs> so yeah, we picked. Teams that were already good and contenders. Yeah, we don't get to claim all of those victories, but well, it's going to blow up in my face when City goes down two leagues. <laughs> Is that going to actually happen? I doubt. I it. Can, I can't imagine they can give up that revenue stream, but or they'd be willing to. Anyway, I just wanted to provide a little context. It's yeah. not like we just started following these teams. I've been at it now for almost fifteen years, almost. But yeah. I know how it looks <laughs> when you have when you have Americans on a podcast. Make like, well, yeah. we pick two of the better, more successful teams to follow. There is a little bit of rhyme and reason. To well, it. guess what? If you were in our shoes, you would have too. Yeah, I'm sure it's the UK different. people that follow American sports generally pick the good teams yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm thinking the Cleveland Browns is going to be my team. Well, you'd have to be a masochist, probably. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Any joke you want to make about your eyes being held open and forced to watch right. something. It's endlessly uh, memeable. 
Malcolm McDowell's eyes were anesthetized for the torture scenes so that he would film for periods of time without too much discomfort. Nevertheless, his corneas got repeatedly scratched by the metal lid locks. The doctor standing over Alex as he is being forced to watch violent films was a real doctor, ensuring that his eyes didn't dry up. And as I mentioned, during the filming of the Lodovico scene, McDowell scratched one of his corneas and was temporarily blinded. Oof. He also suffered cracked ribs during the filming of the Humiliation stage show that is yet to come. Yikes. So it was an all-in type performance. Well, you kind of always hear that about Kubrick's movies, right? It was like going to war, being in one of his movies. Although there is a funny anecdote coming up about the guy that carries the wheelchair. Okay. Where he was basically like, you get this many takes. Yeah. (laughs) And Kubrick had to kind of go with it. Because what was he going to do? Tell that guy. Yeah, yeah. That guy just choke slams him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The videos that Alex is watching at first are beatings, rapes, Nazi propaganda, war footage, all different kinds of bad shit. But this is what we were talking about earlier, the Pavlov's dog situation. The biggest failure of this and why it would never work on humans is because Alex knows he's in an experiment and he is aware that the drug has been injected into his body. So he knows where the sickness actually comes from, whereas the dog is completely unaware, and they could never fathom the reasons why humans would do this or what their experiment is or what they're trying to do. Right. Dogs are in a completely different situation. In fact, Pavlov's dogs began to salivate not just at the dinging of the bell, if you're familiar with the famous test, but also the sight of men in lab coats. Everything around it became, oh, I'm about to get a food. You couldn't just make it be one thing. So when you apply that to Alex, you have no idea what his Pavlovian response is actually going to be to. It might be the violence. It could be just watching films. It could be being in a chair. It could be seeing these doctors. It could be anything. Plus, opening your eyes. The movie itself does a reasonable job of leading us down that path with his Pavlovian response of getting sick Mm -hmm. to his favorite Ludwig van, which is about to happen in a minute. But this is the moral quandary. This is the idea of, well, what if there was a cure, quote unquote, for the sides of human nature we find distasteful? There isn't going to be much of a support group for people who think Alex is a good guy and should be doing these things. But that's not the point. The point is, do we use a blunt object, a tool, something to break away the pieces of ourselves we don't want? And by ourselves, I don't mean us personally, like one human. I mean humanity in general. And who gets to decide? Because, yes, of course, 99.9% of people would vote for Alex to have this treatment if that was a thing to vote for. Right. But then it becomes, well, what if this person doesn't think this way about a movie or think this way about a political issue? Should we be able to take our political enemies and make them think the way we want them to think? The minister says it. Is this the way we want him to get there, basically? You mean the chaplain? Yeah, yeah, sorry. The the minister is the, the guy who gives him the cure. Right. Which is confusing. Yeah, yeah, true. But he's the minister of the interior, which is like a government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The prison chaplain is the only guy who defends the idea of free will. Yeah, so he's given up the choice. The treatment continues. Alex becomes nauseated by the films, and when the visuals are accompanied by the music of his favorite composer, Ludwig van Beethoven, Alex fears the technique will ruin his ability to listen to him anymore and begs for an end to the treatment. However, he is unsuccessful. The wheels are in motion. He is unaware of it at this point, but he is a cog in the machine. Uh-huh. He is now a pawn in a political game that he is not really 
aware of and probably doesn't give a shit about. His main thing is, I just want to get out. You have to be cured. It was horrible. Of course it was horrible. Violence is a very horrible thing. That's what you're learning now. Your body's learning it. I just don't understand about feeling sick the way I did. I never used to feel sick before. I used to feel like the very opposite. I mean, doing it or watching it, I used to feel real on a show. You felt ill this afternoon because you're getting better. You see, when we're healthy, we respond to the presence of the hateful with fear and nausea. You're becoming healthy, that's all. By this time tomorrow, you'll be healthier still. done my best morning and afternoon to play it their way and sit like a horror show cooperative malchick in the chair of torture while they flashed nasty bits of ultraviolence on the screen though not on the soundtrack my brothers the only sound being music then i noticed in all my pain and sickness what music it was that like cracked and boomed it was ludwig van Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement. Not cured yet, boy. 
sirs, misses. I see that it's wrong. It's wrong because it's like against society. It's wrong because everybody has the right to live and be happy without being told chopped and knifed. No, no, boy, you really must leave it to us and be cheerful about it. In less than a fortnight now, you will be a free man. Two weeks later, the minister, the minister of the interior, demonstrates Alex's rehabilitation to a gathering of officials. Alex is unable to fight back against an actor who taunts and attacks him, and then he becomes ill, wanting sex with a topless woman. The prison chaplain complains that Alex has been robbed of his free will, but the minister of the interior asserts that the Ludovico technique will cut crime and alleviate crowding in prisons. By the way, that woman really into her performance really soaking in the bow. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I have that, too, because the the other first guy right. does, too. They I know. bow in the applause <laughs> like they did anything. <laughs> the first guy makes Alex lick his boot, and I guess McDowell was saying he made there be a shoe that had never touched the ground. Oh, yeah. That's the only way he was going to do it. I like watching the reaction from the audience to the tits on stage. Mm-hmm. That one guy with the mustache, the, the more traditional prison guy. Right. There's a shot of the woman topless, then it cuts back to him, and he is like a fucking cartoon dog. Like <laughs> His tongue is like almost hanging out. He's like, oh, God. <laughs> it's so over the top. Yeah. This leads to a spirited debate between the prison chaplain and the minister of the interior, but what we're seeing here is the stripping away of humanity in the pursuit of some pristine, unrealistic utopia. The minister says, as a way of ending the argument, the point is that it works. Right. <laughs> Just... Shut up. Who cares? And he freely admits that the motivation is just to eliminate crime and to alleviate prison crowding. Definitely. There isn't really any pursuit of real change. It's just to fix the numbers to look a certain way, which, of course, means that all of this is inherently political more than anything else. The film's central moral question is the definition of of goodness and whether it makes sense to use aversion therapy to stop immoral behavior. Stanley Kubrick, writing in Saturday Review, described the film, quote, a social satire dealing with the question of whether behavioral psychology and psychological conditioning are dangerous new weapons for a totalitarian government to use to impose vast controls on its citizens and turn them into little more than robots. Similarly, on the production's call sheet, Kubrick wrote, quote, It is a story of the dubious redemption of a teenage delinquent by conditioned reflex therapy. It is, at the same time, a running lecture on free will. I would take that to mean that what this film is positing is that goodness without free will does not equal true goodness. That is not the same thing. That's a fair takeaway. That free will is essential to differentiating between goodness and badness on some level. When if somebody's doing something just to appease whatever, is that really what you want out of it? Alex has essentially become like the title of the film, A Clockwork Orange. Organic on the outside, mechanical on the inside. He is a pawn in an early precursor to what we now kind of think of as the culture wars, where there's two sides to everything that are always fighting forever. Mm-hmm. I would say that America has devolved into an endless culture war that almost supersedes actual politics and becomes the defining characteristic of so many people, mostly through the insidious induction of 
social media into our lives and then people get ramped up. And so everything becomes part of your political identity. If you don't believe me, just go on fucking Facebook or TikTok or Twitter or any of these places and you see it constantly. This is how people live. It's an endless game. It's as if your favorite football team is in a Super Bowl game that never ends. That's basically where we're at with politics right, and political right. discussion and discourse and what I think of as the culture wars. And it goes into these endless fucking fights and debates about everything. Just these spiraling discussions that have no end. And yeah, ever. and no one will ever convince the other side of anything. But I would say that after the first 45 minutes of A Clockwork Orange, to think that that's where this movie goes is very strange. Totally. I wasn't born until... 12 years after this film was released, but I'm coming at it and that's what I'm seeing is, oh, this is weird that this is where this would go. Like, yeah, obviously I know that trying to make a point about a movie that's 50 years old is kind of weird because they were all around talking about it before I was even born. But I would say that watching it now, if you were unfamiliar with the movie and you watch that first 45 minutes, you're probably thinking this doesn't have anything to do with modern political discourse. And yet, that's kind of what happens, and sure. it's weird how relevant it is now. I know, I know. I don't know that it always syncs up with a way that a lot of people would agree with now in terms of the, its way of thinking, but that is sort of where it goes. The story portrays the conservative and leftist parties as equally worthy of criticism, so we're back at being a centrist again. Because everyone has a self-serving agenda. You're part of this party, but it's more like that's a facade. Like, yeah, I think that's, that's the point, is yeah. the, the selfishness of everyone is the same, and it doesn't matter what side that you're on. Right. Everyone's motivations in any given moment are just driven by their own journey or what they're trying to accomplish. They are happy to sacrifice what the overall group might stand for if their own self-serving need comes up. Yeah, which I still think is true today. Yeah, yeah. I think that when this film was made... Everything was a lot different, even though it is familiar and similar in some ways. But I I think that the tone and the vibe of everyday life was so different that this movie could exist and you could experience it and think about it and let it potentially influence you in some ways, but not other ways, however you felt comfortable with. But there's not really that kind of room now. The idea of criticizing both sides and playing the both sides game and existing in a land of centrism and all of that stuff isn't the same anymore because of things we've experienced. You can't have the incident with the tiki torches and then having the president saying there's bad people on both sides and then still think that saying both sides, both sides, both sides all the time is going to be good because with good reason there's a significant portion of this country that's sick of hearing that kind of shit. Totally. Even if there are people on their side too worthy of criticism who are way over the top or ridiculous or whatever. Because you can't really fixate on just the most egregious people on one side and then equate that to the other side, which is like, oh, well, the majority of those people are egregious or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Taking the worst from one side and then saying, well, they're the same as the other side, even though way more of the other side is terrible. Mm -hmm. Because it does kind of come down to a numbers game sometimes with that, too. But there are merits to centrism because I do think that sometimes that is the more level-headed way to approach certain subjects but like i said i think in this world post those 50 years that have gone by since a clockwork orange there are reasons to not think that centrism is 
reasonable anymore. Sure. You can't just say both sides are crazy and be done with it. Right, right. Because there's too much that's happened, obviously. But this movie exists in a completely different time and place. I think more the reality is both sides are so insanely layered because it's made up of different individuals with their own beliefs and mindsets and experiences that are going to drive any specific situation. So certainly a lot more nuanced than that. The film critiques the behaviorism or behavioral psychology propounded by psychologists John B. Watson and B.F. Skinner. Burgess disapproved of behaviorism, calling Skinner's book Beyond Freedom and Dignity one of the most dangerous books ever written. Although behaviorism's limitations were conceded by its principal founder, Watson, Skinner argued that behavior modification, specifically operant conditioning, learned behaviors via systematic reward and punishment techniques, rather than the classical Watsonian conditioning, is the key to an ideal society. The film's Ludovico technique is widely perceived as a parody of aversion therapy, which is a form of classical conditioning. Author Paul Duncan said, Alex is the narrator, so we see everything from his point of view, including his mental images. The implication is that all of the images, both real and imagined, are part of Alex's fantasies. So who is Alex to us? And what does his dramatic change mean or symbolize? Well, I think most people agree that he never changes. And I think that's kind of the point of the film. Although some people have perceived it differently. I think the omission of the final chapter, which we will talk about a little bit more later, also plays into that. But to me, it means that this doesn't really work. There's no upside to it because eventually it will wear off. There's a high probability that it will get focused onto the wrong thing, meaning they will get the sick response to something else rather right. than what they're intending. And also, although I don't know if they're they good at about faking that part. it yeah. because they. No, I mean, but not get attached to violence either. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm saying, like, you can't control what you're actually going to... Yeah, yeah. It might just be war, or it could be the Nazi symbol, which, of course, would be good, but that wouldn't be enough. Not for Alex, no. There's no way to just ensure that it's going to do what you want it to do. Make it always pointed at the right thing. And also, since the prisoners would know they're part of an experiment, they would be great at faking it. They know exactly what they need to do, which is kind of what Alex does. Oh, yeah. Alex essentially gets what he wants. He gets er- released early from prison, and then he has to go through some shit, but it wears off. Right, right. And he's going to be back to his old ways. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that much time. Psychiatrist Aaron Stern, the former head of the MPA ratings board, believed that Alex represents man in his natural state, the unconscious mind. Alex becomes civilized after receiving his Ludovico cure, and the sickness in the aftermath Stern considered to be the neurosis imposed by society. Kubrick told film critics Philip Strick and Penelope Houston Alex makes no attempt to deceive himself or the audience as to his total corruption or wickedness. He is the very personification of evil. On the other hand, he has winning qualities. His total candor, his wit, his intelligence, and his energy, these are attractive qualities and ones, I might add, which he shares with Richard III. His finger on the pulse of classical music. In the film, we see a society that seems to be uneasy, potentially crumbling. There's a lot of ties with Russian culture, which makes people think that there's some sort of a potential communist future being depicted. As I said earlier, I liked the idea that we're in a world of a potentially failing socialism descending into authoritarian society, a world in transition, but... Kubrick makes sure to pull the camera far enough back so we have the full scope 
both sides can be included in the mockery. Totally. It is somewhat reminiscent a little bit of a more modern depiction of centrism that infuriates people because it's usually connected in a way with libertarianism, which nowadays is definitely more associated with being conservative for a variety of reasons. But I would say that anytime people get upset about the political discourse being put forward by South Park, that would be like another big example of this kind of centrism. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And a lot of people are very angry with South Park these days. Wow. Over the last couple of years, I guess. Not because of it's one come specific full circle. thing, <laughs> but because they've taught a generation to think that nothing is worth caring about. They have that very detached Gen X way of looking at well, things. Well, if you get on social media, I think you realize that there's a lot of people out there that care about one thing or the other. <laughs> well, right, but that's who they're fighting against yeah, yeah. is this complacency or it's cool not to care or however you want to look at it. But that was a big thing with South Park or Gen X or the 90s, but shares a lot of the same DNA, I think, with what totally. people think of Clockwork Orange is putting out there. Kubrick asserted that the film held comparisons between both ends of the political spectrum, that there is little difference between the two. Kubrick stated, The minister, played by Anthony Sharp, is clearly a figure of the right. The writer, Patrick McGee, is a lunatic of the left. They differ only in their dogma. Their means and ends are hardly distinguishable. Totally. But you have to remember, this is art that is emerging from anger and pain. We know what Burgess's inspiration for the novel was Absolutely. with his own incident. So yeah, Clockwork Orange is ideologically messy, but I think on a very simplistic level, you can at least take comfort in the idea that government and power equal corrupt and free will equals good, which I don't know if any of that has to necessarily be controversial, but it's never that simple. There's usually a a lot attached to these things. Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange is an ideological mess, a paranoid right-wing fantasy masquerading as an Orwellian warning. It pretends to oppose the police state and forced mind control, but all it really does is celebrate the nastiness of its hero, Alex. Hmm. That's from Roger Ebert's original review in which he gave the film two out of four stars. He softened a little bit later, although I don't know that he ever officially rewrote a review, which he did do plenty of times. Initially, the film received mixed reviews overall, but it was clear that it was simply undeniable and that there was a real appetite at the time for boundary-pushing extreme material. So Ebert wasn't getting into our humble narrator, him being the protagonist of the movie. Isn't it supposed to be like he's the one telling us the story, so maybe that's why he seems like cooler and more jovial about this all? Well, yeah, but you can't just make up an excuse and just do whatever you want. I mean, he still feels that the movie glorifies the violence and doesn't pay any respect to the victims, which I know that Pauline Kael also railed against. There isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card for anything you want to do. Sure. You can't just be like, well, this is because this is happening. It's like, yeah, but you still showed an anal rape for eight minutes and yeah, irreversible yeah. or whatever. You know what I mean? True, like, true. You can't just be like, but this it does is show up fucked up. I wish I didn't see this. I, say, I would say. What's that? I, I always see it show up that like, well, it's because we're getting it from this person's perspective. No, I know. But in terms of like just one person's yeah, yeah. take on the film, there isn't always going to be a get-out-of-jail free card if you don't like a movie for whatever reason you don't like it yeah i don't know this is a movie that i think is powerful important it has a lot of interesting ideas i don't know that i agree with all the ideas and i don't 
think that this is a movie I would necessarily want to rewatch every year or anything no, like that. I would say maybe decades have almost gone by for me. I did actually just watch it last year, but that had been probably the first time in a while. Yeah. I definitely watched it a few times in a small window of time, and I think I've set it aside since then. Yeah, and not every film that we cover is necessarily going to be a feel-good, rewatchable type thing, that's for sure, but it's a fascinating piece of work. Definitely. Even if you don't necessarily agree with everything about it, it's important to remember that context changes over time, and the way that they thought about certain topics were completely different because X, Y, and Z hadn't happened yet. Right. And I think that sometimes people forget that when they go back in time and criticize something. And I'm not just talking about A Clockwork Orange or even movies specifically. It could be anything. People do struggle with that. Contextualizing. Yeah. Putting things into their proper place. At least place. in this current era we're in now, that seems to be a big stumbling block for people. Alex is released from prison only to find that the police have sold his possessions to provide compensation to his victims and his parents have rented out his room. Yeah, they uh, upgraded. However, he's unable to fight the new border because he's paralyzed by the treatment, and when he realizes where he's at and he's not welcomed in his own home, he becomes weepy. It's a yeah. whole This is his realization. most sort of, I would say it's the most emotionally fragile we ever see him is in this moment. For sure. Well, you have to look at it like I just said. He got what he wanted. Yeah. He got to be released from prison. Which but is- now what? Yeah, and now he's. This is the first time where he's being presented with any kind of pushback. Like, oh, your fucking snake is dead. Your stuff is gone. We're not going to kick this guy out. So we you don't sold have a room. your shitty record collection. <laughs> Nobody wanted him, so we threw him in the dumpster. Your record collection is very meat and potatoes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. No, I just meant that you didn't have anything cool or rare or interesting. <laughs> God, I can't wait for the new season. Of I think you should leave. Alex heads out into the world, into his new sad sack existence, but almost immediately he encounters the elderly vagrant he and the other droogs attacked at the beginning of the film, and this sets off a rather unfortunate parade of retribution for poor Alex to endure. Definitely. The vagrant and some of his homeless chums attack Alex. He is eventually rescued by two policemen, but is horrified to discover that they are his former friends, Dim and Georgie, yeah, and they haven't forgotten about him pushing them around in their earlier years. They drive him out to the countryside, beat him, and then nearly drown him before abandoning him out there. In this random tub that it seems like they know where this is. I know. Well, it seems like they've done it before. Yeah, yeah. And then Frank Alexander references right. that other people have come through, so it must just be something they do. Again, not a glowing depiction of police. Well, I mean, this is the subtle yeah. shift in the movie, that you're supposed to see... The world is different from when he left, and I think that they're going from this broken-down socialist government to this new government that's much more authoritarian, and that's this government that thinks right. that they can just cure him, and that the leftist guy, the beatnik, the writer, yep. he thinks he can get rid of this by proving what Exposing they've done. Exposing it. Exactly. So it is a shift in how things were when he went in versus how they are now. It's very subtle, but it seems as if Dim and Georgie are now stormtroopers for the evil side. Alex barely makes it to the doorstep of a nearby home before collapsing. And so at the very least, I know that some things maybe don't age well in a modern world, but it's clear what the film thinks of police and the government and power. So we know that that's bad, at least, which I think is still true today. 
Job for two, who are now of job age. The police. <laughs> Come on, Alice. I'm <laughs> <Stop the> walking. <laughs> 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 come, 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 my little Drugis. I just don't get this at all. The old days are dead and gone. For what I did in the past, I've been punished. Punished. I've been cured. Cured, yeah. That was read out to us. The inspector read it all out to us. He said it was a very good way. But what is all this? It was them that went for me, brothers. <laughs> Well, you're not on their side and can't be. <laughs> well, you can't be, Tim. <laughs> it was someone we filled with back in the old days, trying to get his own little bit of revenge after all this time. Remember, Tim? A long time is right. I don't remember them days to our show. But don't call me Dim no more either. <laughs> Officer called me. <laughs> Enough is remembered, though, little Alice. <laughs> <laughs> this is to make sure you stay cured. <laughs> 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 the whole thing is rather demoralizing. He can't fight back so. anyway. Yeah. Getting beat up by old people and then beat up by his old friends. Almost killed. One thing, everyone just remembers their run-ins with him and yeah. is out for revenge. It's unlikely that Alex doesn't die here. It seems like he's underwater way too much. I, I do agree with that. It's actually Georgie who intervenes. I think if it was up to Dim and Yeah, this would have been it Alex for Alex. would be dead. Right. However, when he does pull himself together and find this house, it's... Very distinctive driveway and gate. I think I, the audience knows exactly where he's ended up. Strange that Alex doesn't. Well, he's fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Plus, how many times did he do this? And years have gone by I know, now. but very distinct home sign. Alex has found himself in the home of Frank Alexander, the man Alex and his droogs assaulted and whose wife Alex raped. Frank is now living with a giant muscular caretaker <laughs> and does not recognize Alex because when they last met, Alex was wearing a mask. My God! What's happened to you, my boy? And would you believe it, oh, my brothers and only friends, there was your faithful narrator being held helpless like a babe in arms and suddenly realizing where he was and why home on the gate had looked so familiar. But I knew I was safe. I knew he would not remember me, for in those carefree days, I and my so-called droogs wore our masks, which were like real horror show disguises. Police. 
ghastly, horrible police. They beat me up, sir. The police beat me up, sir. I know you. Isn't it your picture in the newspapers? Didn't I see you on the video this morning? Are you not the poor victim of this horrible new technique? Yes, sir. That's exactly who I am and what I am, sir. A victim, sir. And by God, you've been sent here by Providence. Tortured in prison, then thrown out to be tortured by the police. My heart goes out to you, poor, poor boy. Well, you are not the first to come here in distress. The police are fond of bringing their victims to the outskirts of this village. But it is providential that you, who are also another kind of victim, should come here. Oh, but you're cold and shivering. Julian, draw a bath for this young man. Certainly, Frank. Thank you very much, sir. God bless you, sir. Frank, who is now confined to a wheelchair, shakes in excitement as he speaks with Alex. Though he may not recognize him as his own attacker, he knows of him and the Ludovico technique from the newspapers. He sees Alex as a political weapon and prepares to present him to his colleagues. Frank sees Alex as a means of definitively turning the populace against the incumbent government and its new regime. He fears the new government, and in a telephone conversation he says, quote, Recruiting brutal young roughs into the police, proposing dehabilitating and will-sapping techniques of conditioning, oh, we've seen it all before in other countries, the thin end of the wedge. Before we know where we are, we shall have the full apparatus of totalitarianism. While bathing, though, as he's on the phone... Just an insane move by Alex. While Frank is on the phone, I should say. Alex breaks into singing in the rain, causing Frank to realize that Alex was the person who assaulted him and his wife. Come on, man. You can't sing any other song? Food! All right! (laughs) (laughs) Try the wine! (laughs) The most insane I know. It almost seems like it's out of like a Monty Python movie or something. Yeah, I do think we're supposed to recognize the hypocrisy now that it becomes personal. That's Yet right. all of these yeah. big plans as far as using Alex as a redemptive story, yep. something that he could further his own agenda, and now realizing he just wants revenge against exactly. someone who did something to him. Totally willing to sacrifice all of his political alignments. Whatever the party stood to gain from this, who gives a shit now? I just want to fuck this dude up. We learn that Frank's wife is dead. He refers to her as a victim of the modern age. I'm familiar. It's an interesting <laughs> It's an interesting situation because Alex knows where he is. Frank figures out who he is. Mhm. Alex immediately becomes suspicious with good reason that yeah. Frank knows who he is. He thinks the wine is poisoned. He thinks all kinds of shit's happening. He becomes nervous and wants to get out of there. It's unclear if Frank knows that Alex knows, but he doesn't seem to be hiding it anymore, barely containing his rage every That's time right. he speaks. Yeah. It becomes very uncomfortable. Before filming the scene where he had to carry Patrick McGee's wheelchair down the stairs, professional bodybuilder David Prouse went up to Stanley Kubrick and asked if he could make sure that, due to the difficulty of the task, he got the scene in as few takes as possible, saying, you're not exactly known as one-take Kubrick, are you? Oh, yeah. The rest of the crew was horrified at such 
a famous director being talked to like this, but Kubrick just laughed and promised to do his best. The scene was filmed in only six takes, an incredibly small amount for a perfectionist like Kubrick. LOL. Even so, Prowse was near exhaustion after the repeated takes of him carrying Frank in his wheelchair down the stairs. No, wait a second. This might be stupid. David Prowse, is that the guy that played Darth Vader? Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. All right. I never knew that. I, that, that that this was him. Not the guy without the mask. I think it's just the guy that's in the mask. Isn't it? And then they dubbed his voice. I don't think it's the guy you see at the end. Oh, right, right. Yeah, no, I just mean the guy in the suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They used James Earl Jones's voice. Right. And then the guy who takes the mask off is not there. Somebody else, yeah. yeah. But yes, but I did recognize the name with you saying it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, never knew that was him, though. With help from his colleagues, Frank drugs Alex and then locks him in an upstairs bedroom. He then plays Beethoven's Ninth Symphony loudly from the floor below. Unable to stand the sickening pain, Alex attempts suicide by jumping out the window. Kind of a boneheaded move to tell your potential enemy that listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony specifically makes you sick. I know. Just blurting at anything just out. Just going at this point. nuts, though, like stomping all over the floor. Just can't take it. Alex survives the suicide attempt and wakes up in a hospital with multiple injuries. He's literally in traction. A hilarious little gag where the doctor and nurse were having sex in the bed. Like I know it's, it's, it's funny, like with the subtitles on too, because it'll just be like moan, <laughs> woman moans. We see a montage of headlines. Alex's last name is Burgess, and some of them, even Alex's parents, reappear. It, it's gone all the way around to where now Alex is considered a true victim. I know <laughs> he's getting all this press sympathy, even though right. The film obviously playing with the murderer. irony of this now, yeah. Good morning. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Good morning, Mrs. How are you feeling today? Fine, fine. Good. May I? I'm Dr. Taylor. I haven't seen you before. I'm your psychiatrist. Psychiatrist? Do I need one? Just part of hospital routine. What are we going to do? Talk about me sex life? Oh, no. I'm going to show you some slides, and you're going to tell me what you think about them. All right? Oh, jolly good. Do you know anything about dreams? Something, yes. Do you know what they mean? Perhaps. Are you concerned about something? No, no, I'm not concerned, really, but, uh... I've been having this very nasty dream. Very nasty. It's like, um, well, when I was all smashed up, you know, and, and half awake and unconscious like, I kept having this dream. And like all these doctors were playing around with me Gulliver, you know, like the inside of my brain. I seem to have this dream over and over again. Do you think it means anything? <laughs> Patients who sustain the kind of injuries you have often have dreams of this sort. It's all part of the recovery process. Ah. Now then, each of these slides needs a reply from one of the people in the picture. You tell me what you think the person would say. All right. Righty right. Isn't the plumage beautiful? I just say what the other person would say. Yes. Isn't the plumage beautiful? Oh, yes, well, don't think about it too long. Just say the first thing that pops into your mind. Cabbages, knickers, uh, it's not got a, a beak. Good. <laughs> the 
The boy you always quarreled with is seriously ill? My mind is a blank. Uh, the bo- and I'll smash your face for you, your blockos. Good. <laughs> what do you want? Uh, no time for the old in and out, love. I've just come to read the meter. Good. You sold me a crummy watch. I want my money back. You know what you can do with that watch? Stick it up your ass. <laughs> Good. You can do whatever you like with these. Eggie wakes. I would like to smash them and pick them all up and throw out. Fucking hell. Oh, there. That's all there is to it. Are you all right? Hope so. Is that the end, then? Yes. Well, I was quite enjoying that. Good, I'm glad. How many did I get right? Oh, it's not that kind of a test. But you seem well on the way to making a complete recovery. While being given a series of psychological tests, Alex finds that he no longer has aversions to sex and violence. The Minister of the Interior arrives and apologizes to Alex. He offers to take care of Alex and get him a job in return for his cooperation with his election campaign and public relations counteroffensive. So this is now the opposite direction of Frank Alexander and what he wanted to do, but yet their actual ways of doing it are kind of similar and also equally... Using him as a pawn? Selfish. On the other side, the Minister of the Interior, who represents the government, jails Mr. Alexander, the dissident intellectual, on the excuse of his endangering Alex, who represents the people rather than the government's totalitarian regime, as described by Mr. Alexander. It is unclear whether he has been harmed, however. The minister tells Alex that the writer has been denied the ability to write and produce, quote, subversive material that is critical of the incumbent government and meant to provoke political unrest. The way that Kubrick decides to dispense with this information and then the rapid way of doing it, I think a lot of this shit goes by you because... As I said, the structure of this film is very weird. The pacing is different. The tone is different. The way that it starts and then almost descends downward in terms of excitement makes some of this stuff potentially lost in translation to the viewer. Because you're waiting for the next big thing to happen, unaware that essentially the last 20 minutes of the movie, Alex is just going to be laying in a hospital bed and he never really gets out of it except in his fantasy. Yeah, and this is where a lot of the ideas are coming to fruition and being expressed. But Right, yeah, and I think up. it's natural for the audience to be waiting for the next big right. thing to happen. Yeah. And you're, some of this stuff is probably just going right by you, thinking, okay, Definitely. when's something going to happen now? Because you're waiting for some big payoff. He's either going to rape the nurse or kill the doctor or do something crazy or yeah, have another run-in with the old droogs. But none of that really happens. And so some of this information, by the time... It's already out out of their mouths. You've already kind of missed it because you're waiting and because waiting and waiting. Because the big thing is Alex didn't change. None of this worked. And then it, we've now seen all of the flaws of everyone else around him in the world that surrounds him. Right. The minister now is basically talking about a cover-up. He's literally feeding Alex, which right. is hilarious. Yeah. Alex really hamming it up, too. <laughs> yeah. Opening his mouth like a bird. <laughs> <laughs> and the minister doesn't even care. He's just like, here. I'm going to say all this shit, and we need you to do all this, and you're going to help, and then you'll have a job, and everything will be great. As a sign of goodwill, the minister brings in a stereo system playing Beethoven's Ninth, 
Alex then contemplates violence and has vivid thoughts of having sex with a woman in front of an approving crowd, thinking to himself, I was cured, all right. <laughs> Evidently, 74 takes. Wow. Final scene. Unlike the six of the wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it ends. And it ends unexpectedly in a way. Even though you're two hours and 17 minutes into this thing, you're still kind of expecting there to be one more big moment. And it doesn't really come. You're just supposed to understand that he's back to his old ways and he just needs to heal and then he's going to go back to what he was doing before. That's right. Stanley Kubrick worked on many adaptations throughout his film career, much more than you would probably even think. And A Clockwork Orange is considered to be the most faithful to its source material among them. However, there are some notable differences, including the outright omission of the final chapter in which Alex matures and seems to outgrow sociopathy. All U.S. editions of the novel prior to 1986 omit the final chapter for reasons. Okay. Kubrick called the missing chapter an extra chapter and claimed that he had not read the original version until he had virtually finished the screenplay and that he had never seriously considered using it. In Kubrick's opinion, as in the opinion of other readers, including the original American editor, the final chapter was unconvincing and inconsistent with the book. Yeah, I think if I saw a matured version of Alex who's outgrown sociopathy, I would be like, this isn't real. Basically what happens is he sees how the lives are going for some of his fellow droogs who decided to get real jobs and grow up, and he thinks that that's what he wants to do. And he just becomes like a regular member of society. It did feel disingenuous and not real because everything else you see is real. Or I'm not real, but part of the book, including the fact where he's not really cured. But then the whole thing is tying that in with where the prison chaplain was. He does actually use free will to decide to not be a piece of shit anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to be a piece of shit. (laughs) You call this slick back? This is pushback. (laughs) People who don't watch that show are probably so annoyed. They need to, though. (laughs) You used to be. I said was. (laughs) Anyway. There's also some differences in the book, I think, in the presentation of the government and authority. The government in the book is much more together. Oh, yeah. And with it, whereas there's a little bit of a bumbling nature that I think Kubrick added for humor, but also because he didn't really have a positive opinion of the government, so he would make them look like idiots. Authority in general. Some of the characters, like I said, Deltoid is a lot different in the movie. He's a creep and sadistic. He's not really like that in the book. The other major issue, I would say, is the ages of everybody. Alex is 15 years old at the beginning of the book and 17 at the end of it. In the movie, in order to try to minimize controversy, they started him at age 17 and then 19 at the end of the film. doesn't look anything like it because McDowell was 27 at the time of filming. does right. not really look like a teenager. No. There's also a lot of stuff, too, with the age of the victim's It's one of those things, it's sort of like Game of Thrones when you're reading Daenerys Targaryen and she's being raped by Khal Drago. She's supposed to be like 12 or something. You're like, Jesus fucking Christ. Seriously. Books are fucking wild. Books are so much wilder than movies. I don't know that people really understand it if you're not a big reader. There's literally no rules in books. Anything can happen. Any age of the characters doesn't matter. The victims, the one that's being raped by the other gang, the one that her clothes are ripped off at the beginning of the movie, she's supposed to be 10 years old. Good Lord. The two girls that he picks up at the record store, they're supposed to be 10 years old as well. Yeah, it's shocking. And it's not a consensual encounter like it is in the movie. They actually okay. made it less terrible in the Definitely. movie. 
you have to really be coming at this from a dark place, I think, to write something like A Clockwork Orange I'd the way that so. it was originally yeah. written. In recent years, a follow-up to A Clockwork Orange was found in Anthony Burgess's home called A Clockwork Condition. It's an unfinished 200-page manuscript that expands upon the themes in the original. Kind of doubt that that will ever see the light of day. So I'm thinking not. Likely that there won't be a sequel. However, in 2025, there will be a gender-swapped remake with Zendaya in the lead role as Alexa. Really? No, I made that up. <laughs> but that would be funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. In the remake of Space Jam yeah. with LeBron James, and they had all those Warner Brothers characters standing around, there were fucking droogs standing there. Oh, really? I think there was even something from The Devils, the Ken Russell movie. <laughs> Unless that was made up, that one might, I don't know. Okay, okay. They put in like all kinds of weird shit in the background, and it's like, okay. <laughs> that is strange. I don't know. Look look up if the droogs thing is real. I'm pretty sure the droogs part was real. I don't know about up. the Devils thing, because that movie's even more insane in some ways. Some ways. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying the LeBron James Space Jam. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that, insane. too. <laughs> it's probably also more insane than A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> For different reasons. <laughs> Malcolm McDowell was hurt when, after he and Stanley Kubrick had such a close relationship during filming, Kubrick seemed uninterested in continuing their friendship afterward. McDowell later attributed some of that sentiment to his being a young actor unfamiliar with the intimacy of the filmmaking process, but admitted that he was very upset by it at the time. He did remain close friends with Kubrick's wife, Christine, though. But yeah, there is a certain coldness in the film business, but I, I would imagine that Kubrick was probably even more cold than uh, your yeah. usual directors. If it comes through in his filmmaking, certainly. The lasting legacy of A Clockwork Orange has to be violence in cinema, for sure. This can't be stated enough. I know we've already stated it, but I'm stating it again. Go ahead. This was a world that was not used to this. Think about the last five years leading up to this. Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde, Night of the Living Dead, The Wild Bunch in 1969, Soldier Blue, movie that is probably the least famous of this list, but a movie I have seen, which is very weird, but I would recommend checking out if you haven't seen it. Uh-huh. Just because... It's like a an Old West-style movie where there's a massacre at the end. I oh, guess yeah. you would say Cowboys and Indians. I'm not really sure the details of the story exactly. I can't remember. I know Candace Bergen is in it. And she gets kidnapped or something. But then there's this great massacre at the end, I, I believe, where the a great massacre kills the Native okay. Americans. Yeah. And it is so violent and bloody. But it's so weird because the rest of the movie is your typical 1960s, early 70s Western. And then all of a sudden it goes so over the top with violence. Violent set piece. Dirty Harry, 71. Straw Dogs, also 71. There was a big cultural shift. That's the same year Clockwork Orange came out. And it pushed the boundaries out far enough to where we could enjoy the next 50 years without really worrying as much about violence. There's always a topic du jour. We talked about it a little bit in the Ninja Turtles thing. I think there was a renewed interest in violence when it came to kids' material. But now our society has definitely shifted to being more concerned with sexual elements rather than violence. 30-plus years later, I see this movie for the first time. And the rape home invasion sequence was really tough for me to watch. It really impacted me. And I was like, I really don't think that this movie is for me. I did Watch it a few more times after that, and, <laughs> and <laughs> but, realize quickly that it was. For well, you. no, I mean it's, it's the same thing with Requiem for a Dream. I did immediately appreciate the artistic value to it, but I was like, I don't really enjoy watching this. 
I can't say this enough either. The depiction of the violence and the rape is bad enough, but that's not really what is the coldest, most haunting part. It's the reaction to it and the lack of humanity. Right, yes. And I do think that Kubrick's mistake, if he did make one, I'm not saying he did, but if you go by how people reacted to the film, I think that his own detachment from that violence let it linger there, and a certain segment of the people seeing it are not going to be able to handle how heartless and nihilistic it was. There's zero sentiment. There's zero feeling to it. It's like Haneke explores in Funny Games. It's, It's just what is the worst of society? What could happen? And the fucked up thing is it's not as if anything that happens in A Clockwork Orange or Funny Games or any of these movies really is completely invented. I no. mean, there's home invasions. There's pointless violence in the real world. Yeah. Violence without any reason. Well, we always try to like understand it and put a reason to it. One of the scariest things is unmotivated violence. Yeah, like, or vi- motivated just for kicks. Right, yeah. It's just that's, for fun, yeah. and that's it. I think the film's structure, tone, plot, genre, all of these things feel elusive and strange and are never really easy to pin down. Like, what is the genre of this movie? I, I really wouldn't begin to be able to know i have no yeah, idea that's a good point i don't know <laughs> you would probably file it under drama but i don't really think the same people who are renting ordinary people are gonna rent a clockwork orange you know what i mean genre is such a they might be in for a surprise drama is such a wide range for a genre but i don't know i don't know what i, I guess you'd know. have to mind bending under action or science fiction or something like that just to keep it away from like sure, the yeah, genre. Right. You, this needs to go into some kind of a a genre of <laughs> Yeah. Uh, going to r- run a movie right next to Driving Miss Daisy, A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> Folks, I think that'll do it for A Clockwork Orange. I don't really have anything else to say about it other than if you have not already seen it, I would definitely recommend checking it out, but there are some caveats some provisions you know just know I think what you're you need getting to be mentally into. prepared for what you're getting into yeah because like i said i do think that for some people this is probably more shocking now than it ever yeah. was before because I, you're not really ever seeing anything like this now right in a movie i don't want to keep making the requiem for a dream comparison but movies that i watched as a teen that i was like holy shit like really fucked with me they're both in that category but i can watch them now and it's no big deal yeah, I'm, really I'm attracted to a certain amount, a certain percentage of fucked up, but I do have my limits. I don't know that a, that Requiem for a Dream or A Clockwork Orange ever really hit me that hard. It's certainly not as hard as some other movies, and there are certain ones that I will not watch. Yeah, yeah. Because I know enough about them that um, I'm not interested. Kids was another one for me. <laughs> Kids was definitely like a sucker punch. Yeah. That was the first time I think I'd ever seen anything so empty feeling at I the know. end where you're kind of like what the fuck right but kids is unique in the sense that it doesn't feel like a movie it feels like a documentary and that's something that you can't recapture by accident no it's tough to shake too there's nothing about requiem for a dream or a clockwork orange where i'm mistaking it for a documentary no whereas no. the people in kids you're kind of like is this real yeah you're looking over at the people you're watching with like oh, what's going on here <laughs> not recognizing chloe seven as an actress yet I think when I saw kids, I did recognize Rosario Dawson. Me too, yeah. And probably her too, but I did probably didn't know her name at the time. I don't know. 
it was still real enough. Yeah, I'm just listing off the movies that fucked with me. You could have told me it was a documentary, but then Rosario Dawson just went on to have a career. Right. (laughs) As an actress. Like, I could (laughs) have believed that. (laughs) Irreversible is one that I own, and Mm. yet I have not rewatched it since owning it. Sure. Because it's just so fucked up. The violence in that is so crazy. And then the rape scene, which goes on for eight minutes, which I referenced earlier, but you're just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a bit much. And then... I've never watched Antichrist. Oh, yeah. Even though I've seen parts of it. I was no longer a teenager when that came out, but yes, the, the part. The mutilation. Yeah, oof. Yeah, ooh. I just didn't have any interest. No, no. Even though I do generally like Lars von Trier. That almost made me not like him. <laughs> I just, that is rough. I will never watch a Serbian film either. No, God, no, I have not seen that. I can't I never imagine what the it. point of that no. would be. There's a few more. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've never watched because I know it's fucked up. I would probably have watched this if I had fallen into the right moment, but now that the moment's gone, I have zero interest because it, it grosses me out. But Human Centipede, I've never watched. And oh, I you haven't? I don't really okay. watch it. Yeah. Well, I would have if, yeah. if someone had been like, let's watch this when it was a thing. Right, I right, knew, yeah. I probably would have. But since I didn't catch it in that window, what am I going to go back and watch it? No, before? no, yeah. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw this on just for laughs. At next episode post Human Centipede. That would be one where I would be willing to watch it under the right circumstances. Yeah. It's not like a, a never ever like some of those other. All things. of a sudden, listener request comes pouring in for it. Yeah, if you do a listener request for a Serbian film, you have to give us a thousand dollars. Yeah, each more. Yeah, <laughs> two grand total for a Serbian film. And then we'll do it. That'll be our fiftieth. I was actually thinking of charging more money for our fiftieth listener request and really blowing it out. But somebody draws the short straw on that. Yeah, it's really that's. More about timing, I guess, <laughs> yeah. so I don't know. Unless we offered something special. Hmm, what could that be? I don't know. Forget it. It's not going to happen. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. All right, folks, we don't have any emails to read, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> No emails to read. Let's move right into a recommendation segment, which is going to be very Matt-heavy, so Ooh. just a fair warning if you want to shut it off now. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't get to see anything, because Matt invited me to see a movie when he knew that I would be editing the Michael Clayton episode. I thought you, I, re- I really thought you'd be done by then. Oh, my God. <laughs> when it I was told three you, days after we When I told it. you I was trying to put it up on Wednesday, you were like, oh, wow, fast turnaround. Yeah, I thought Wednesday, like Tuesday after midnight. No, I explained to you specifically what I meant. I don't know. I just picked a day. It was. It had nothing to do with trying to have you I not know. there. I'm kidding. I'm just saying, like, I have to turn things down sometimes because of yeah, this yeah. podcast. All right, let's um, hear about your recommendation or whatever. So I did go to see Air, which we talked about trying to see together, but, you know, that was what brought up the whole friggin' thing that we talked about No, I know. Time. I know. They changed the times on us the next week. So yeah, yeah. We could go at 630 at night. Yeah. The late convenience. <laughs> yeah, that was the late. Was it was six oh five, I think, or six fifteen, maybe. Yeah, that was the late showing. I did enjoy. It. I, I liked it. It captures the mood you would expect it to capture. Like Matt Damon's good in it. Chris Messina plays like Jordan's agent, and those two have like some pretty funny, like back and forth, over the top douchebaggery conversations. Affleck playing these characters now. I don't know what the deal is. He seems like he can only be cartoony caricature people in movies now. And I know he directed this, but it, it, that part is like a little, 
distracting. He only exists to be goofy in it. He plays Phil Knight. Yeah, yeah. Which I know he's supposed to be like a little bit of an eccentric character and leader of this company, but he just seems like a cartoon character compared to everybody else. For those of you who don't know what it is, we're talking about the movie Air, which came out this year, directed by Ben Affleck. It follows the history of shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro and how he led Nike in its pursuit of the greatest athlete in the history of basketball, Michael Jordan. The story of them recruiting Michael Jordan and yeah. leading to Air Jordan and the whole deal. And fresh coming off of the whole Jordan Netflix ESPN series, it was very timely because that really sort of revitalized the whole Michael Jordan story. And then you're getting this little kind of slice of... Jay Moore is in it? Yeah, looking rough, by the way. I mean, Well, no... he's been through it. Yeah, no offense to Jay Moore out there, but I've been... He's not looking like he did in Jerry Maguire, I'll tell you that. But it is good. I think it's what you'd expect. I don't think there's any surprises to it, but it is well done, enjoyable. Just a, a nice night out of the theater. Okay, so check out Air. I'll probably just be waiting until that comes to streaming at this point. I don't really know that there's a ton coming to theaters in the near future, but... I never know. I know we got the new Indiana Jones, which probably is coming out in May, I would imagine. Yeah. The new Transformers movie, which we're excited about. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, okay, yeah, well, a lot of big things on the horizon. We're going to do another listener request next week, and then there will be two more in May, so hold on to your butts for that. Oh. We are also into August at this point. The listener requests keep pouring in one after another, and I have to be honest with people when they slide into the DMs, hey, you might be waiting a couple months. So if you're still sitting on your hands, you might want to jump on it and get in there. Yeah. Take, we're, take it sounds crack crazy, at, but we're already pushing towards the last quarter of the year now. Yeah, almost. take a crack at being that 50th. and Well, we're still a few <laughs> away. But yeah, don't wait too long because you might be looking at September, November, because we're not going to do them in October either, just like June. So I just enjoy just so that you know. it's the 50th. You have to do something extra if you're that person. Well, I, I, like it's a badge of honor yeah. to be our 50th listener request. <laughs> our 50th listener request will just be another one of my picks, and I'll just write Zach. <laughs> and be like, thanks to Zach for this. Yeah. <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> Every episode that's not a listener request is a Zach request. At this point, yeah. yeah, yeah. I used to ask Matt's opinions about the episodes. He never really yeah. would come through. I like just you, because, you know, you've got this idea. Even of letting you heading. pick some of the revisiteds has proven to be kind of a mistake, uh... which we'll talk about this year when we do yours. Okay. And I rant and rave. <laughs> Although we are doing your first revisited next time. Mm-hmm. And that's not the infuriating one. So people will have to stay tuned to the show all the way until Christmas. Wow. Including me, second. by the way, because I don't remember what it was. It's all right. It's a movie we've talked about too much. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Please send us an email, Greatest pod at gmail.com greatest pod at gmail.com look i appreciate all interaction with everybody and there are plenty of listeners that i do interact with on twitter and other places but please if you haven't sent an email please just do that that way we, we can read it even if it's specific even if you're like 
I just listened to your episode on A Clockwork Orange. Here's my thoughts on A Clockwork Orange. That's fine. Oh, yeah. It can be one specific thing. Or it can be asking true stories about Matt and myself. Anything <laughs> you would like to know. Yeah. We'll provide full honesty. Yeah, not a lot of... Transparency. Interesting facts there, so... Nothing to be we, ashamed of We can talk about here. our previous podcasts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever we got to talk about. Any subject is fine. We would just like to get a little more interaction there because I do think it would be fun to read some emails. So the people that I interact with oh, yeah. from time to time even, please send an email. It only has to be one. It doesn't have to be over the top or crazy. Like I said, it could just be like on one thing. If that would want. be fun if people sent us questions to answer. Yeah, that's why I say questions, no, comments, no. concerns. I didn't think time. about it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we should have no one, like a, no one ever does. I know. I, I want <laughs> yeah. more Q and A. I want to talk about my personal life <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, people would be horrified by that. Oh my god! <laughs> I think it weaves its way into most episodes. There were some nights where I wasn't yeah. too far off from Alex and the Droogs in terms of what me and my <laughs> friends were doing. <laughs> Not really. Yeah. Please, that's a joke. <laughs> no, we never did anything that crazy. Anyway. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter or in an email. If you'd like us to do your listener request, you can reach out. We'll work that out with you. I'm not going to go through all the details, but just reach out in any of the ways that I've already stated. Live shows, they're coming up this summer. We're going to do one in Cleveland, Ohio, one in Indianapolis, Indiana, and one in Los Angeles, California. So get your tickets for the <laughs> Matt's face. We'll be playing the Alamo Draft House in Austin. Matt was like accepting everything I was saying. Uh, like, yeah. yep, that's all true. Wow. <laughs> How did you organize? Did we get like a booking agent? <laughs> zero tickets sold yeah. <laughs> to any of these live events. Zero laughs, zero tickets sold. <laughs> Copious tears. Yeah. No, no live events so far, but if you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, you can find us at Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. Anything else, just reach out. Questions, comments, concerns, greatestpod at gmail.com and greatestpod on Twitter. Mm. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with another listener request. It never ends. This is our busiest year. It feels like it's always getting busier as we move along. Well, that's good. That's a good thing. People are interested yeah. for a change. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you next week.
said no gag gifts and Julie gave me chode jeans and I almost killed myself. What are chode jeans? Chode jeans. They're jeans for a chode. A size 54 waist, 10 inch legs, fucking junk. Julie gave them to me. It was just a joke. I almost killed myself, Julie. Russell.